G'day guys, Ben Qualiata from the Beyond the Fence podcast here and welcome to episode two of our divisional NBA season preview. We're running all through the Atlantic division today. So we've got guests coming in to talk all about the Toronto Raptors, the New York Knicks, Brooklyn Nets, Boston Celtics and Philadelphia 76ers. So enough of my ugly voice, let's get into the episode. has been criticized all season. Their defense has been excellent tonight for most of the game. Celtics with 67 points with 6.45 remaining. Tatum drives down and throws it down! Wow! G'day and welcome back to Beyond the Fences NBA Series Preview. And joining us today to talk all about the Boston Celtics, it's ESPN's Steve Smith, mate. How are you? Mate, I'm really well, Ben. How, how about you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, pretty good weekend for me. Obviously, time of recording, my team has just won the NRL prelims, so I'll be getting very drunk next weekend watching the grand final. But other than that, pretty good. I do have one question, and that is, once again, how did you get this number? Well, my understanding is uh, one of your daughters goes to the Bulldogs, and in a fit of rage and salt, she sent it to me after the game. Oh, she's so grounded. <laughs> <laughs> right. that's just unacceptable unacceptable Unex- out of the way <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's terrible that let's like, let's keep moving let's, can, let's we, can, we, can we please keep that moving? <laughs> <laughs> oh it's staying in um no the boston celtics just i guess we'll just go opening comments before we get into what we've got to talk about specifically yeah it's going to be really interesting to see what what happens to them this year like obviously some a raft of you know front office changes and you know they went they, they went 500 last year in, in what was a really disappointing I think regular season for them they never quite strung it together injuries didn't help um, so they went 36 and 36 and they won their playing game and then you know were promptly copped the gentleman sweep to the nets you know in the first round so I think you know all those sort of changes from you know Danny Ainge moving on Brad Stevens going into the front office. Um, you know, Udoka coming on board as head coach. I think there's there's some real optimism around for 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 Boston. I I don't think they're going to be contenders necessarily, but I think they could be more than nuisance value if if everything goes right. And I think it's it's a a year to build on becoming a, a contender over the next you know two to three seasons. Yeah, just quickly before we go on, obviously you just mentioned that Boston were in the playing game. What are your thoughts on the playing? Oh no, I'm a fan. I, 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 it adds an extra wrinkle to it, and it means you know those late regular season games where a lot of the time teams might be going through the motions. I, I think it, it just adds a little more meaning to them, and I, I just think it adds a, an extra layer of intrigue to the end of the season. What yeah. about you? Well, I mean, I, it's been a, off my radar completely for the last couple of years with the Pistons. <laughs> I'm really hurt. Like, yeah, obviously it's. <laughs> Uh, I break my rule. I said like already. Damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I also agree. I think it's, yeah, you get to March. Like game, teams are sleepwalking. Yeah, at, those at dog days. I, I just And think also just with the whole, in, yeah, yeah, also with the whole resting yeah. thing as well. So I think it's good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, no, but let's get into, right yeah, but let's get into the Celtics specifically. I guess we'll start off with narratives because NBA media and fan bases love narratives. Uh, so I guess going <laughs> into the season, 
maybe it's a, a media narrative or a fan base driven narrative, but what's the most prevalent? I said narrative too many times already, but what's the most prevalent narrative for the Celtics coming <laughs> into the season? I think it's around the personnel changes, obviously not just the front office, but what they've done with the roster. Will that make enough of an impact to keep pace in the East? I think that's the biggest thing. I think obviously moving Kemba Walker out, you know, Tristan Thompson, that never really worked. Uh, and Evan Fournier uh, off to the Knicks with a with a fairly substantial offer. Um, so you know, there's some key players there that that never really got going in their in their Boston tenure. So to replace them, you know, with you know Schroeder and um, Josh Richardson, you know, I think those those are really solid signings. And I think I think as I said before, there's some optimism there that that's that's a better mix. So I think the I think that's the that's the narrative, like how will this look and and will it be enough to at least, you know, you'd think they'd be well in the hunt for a maybe top five, you know, spot in the East, I think. I don't, I don't think that's... Playoff lock, non-playing. Yeah, I think that would be the minimum expectation. I think they'd be disappointed if if they had to make a playing game to make, to make the postseason, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Josh Richardson. I just wanted to touch on him briefly. A few teams now have tried to convince themselves that he's the guy. <laughs> um, th- yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think it's a it, it's a pretty solid addition. Like he, he helps, he certainly makes Boston better defensively on the perimeter. I, I think that's that's probably the the other thing for him is he needs to get back to being a good three point shooter, and and on a team like Boston, that's going to be super important. So the the, the three and D aspect for him, I think, just it makes him a really good fit if he lives up to those expectations. But again, it's it's a large if, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've seen ever since he left Miami, he's kind of had that flux role of starting six man. And like you said, the shooting hasn't probably translated longer term because in Miami he was, and obviously a lot of the expectations come with the contract you're on. And when you're playing on a second round as, you know, uh, kindergarten salary for a coach like Eric Spolstra, then you're going to look probably a bit uh, above your, probably what your realistic uh, let's say happy medium is and yeah, obviously sure. it hasn't quite worked in Dallas or Philadelphia, but I definitely think there's, there's a player in there. I guess people have tried to convince themselves that the idea of Josh Richardson is better than Josh Richardson. Yeah. You probably don't want him being your second or third best player. I think on you know, Boston, he's probably our fourth or fifth. So I think there's less pressure there. So I think that maybe maybe that helps a little bit. There's less attention um, for what he for what he gives, um, but it's it's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, I think there's a nice eclectic mix of of pieces. Let's leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but I guess pivoting on from Josh Richardson leads us nicely into you know additions and losses and just transactions in general. I guess for the Celtics, which transaction? for the team, do you think will have the largest impact? I actually think it's the new coach. I think more than more than any sort of the player additions or subtractions. And like we can talk about all that because obviously losing Kemba Walker, it, was, it, was, it looked like it was going to be a big deal. Um, less so for Tristan Thompson, I think. I, that never really worked uh, as much as I think everyone wanted it to, but he's... He was, from all accounts, a divisive presence in the locker room, and 
Um, I'm shocked. And Evan Fournier, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Evan Fournier didn't really quite get there either. So, but Kemba couldn't stay on the court either. His, his knee was, was a real issue and he missed so many games that, that chemistry became a real issue. So m- him leaving is almost addition by subtraction because, you know, they'll move Marcus Smart over the point guard position full-time. Um, they bring in Dennis Schroeder on a one-year deal. Um, they, they extended Smart as well. So that's, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a much better defensive uh, backcourt rotation they've got there at the, at the point guard spot. Um, but for me, that in, in terms of most significant transactions, appointing, you know, Ime Odoka to, to, you know, they sent Brad Stevens upstairs and, and they, they, this guy has been tagged for a long time as, as being a really potentially good NBA head coach. He's, He's had stops in San Antonio, Philly and, and Brooklyn and everyone speaks so highly about him and how unbelievably level-headed and steady he is um, regardless of, of the situation. So in some respects, you know, he's, he's probably just really continuing what Brad Stevens started uh, in terms of that level-headed approach. But I think he's going to bring some, some different wrinkles. He's already said that he wants, you know, both... Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to be better playmakers, which is a not so subtle way of saying pass the ball better uh, and more often. <laughs> um, and and but I think at the same time he's got their best interests at heart. He wants them to be complete players. So I'm I'm just really keen to see how how his coaching style and and strategies play out. I think that's that's going to be really key. Yeah, maybe the problem with Evan Fournier was just his teammates accidentally googled his name and just couldn't look at him the same way <laughs> again. You're just not allowed to do that. Folks, if you're listening, please do not Google that surname. <laughs> uh, I did want to touch on Tristan Thompson leaving. Do you think Celtics fans are crying out for a bit more time, Lord? Oh, it's going to be really interesting like to see uh, with, with Al Horford coming back in uh, and, and Ennis Cantor as well. So we've got a couple of old friends who are, who are, who are making their way back, back to Boston. So, But if you, if you look at that front court, that, that big rotation of Time Lord, Horford and Cantor, it's actually, in terms of horses for courses, it's not too bad. Um, as, as long as Horford still has some, some juice left in the tank, I, I think he could be really handy, especially in terms of a mentoring role for, for Robert Williams as well. But I think, yeah, everyone's quite excited to see what maybe, you know, heavy minutes Time Lord can, can give them. Yeah, and also just... One last joke I got to get in in a, in a really you know first class display of fumbling the bag with Dennis Schroeder. Just incredible, isn't it? Just it, like it, oh, I'm I'm wrapped. You know that that Boston signed a player of that quality for for such a cheap rental. But yeah, you've got to, you'd be questioning your management, wouldn't you? Just really, oh boy. I, I assume you saw his Instagram on his birthday the other day. Yes. You know, get one, one day to get your jokes in. <laughs> yep. Get them in. Get uh, them in. <laughs> I mean, he's still a multi, like you can laugh at him. He's a multimillionaire, but Jesus Christ, man, come on. Yeah. Just, it's a, not, it's not great. It's a real big payday he's cost himself. But look, if nothing else, um, if this doesn't motivate him to, to be productive and at the same time, not the clubhouse lawyer that, that he has the reputation for being as well. Um, I think, you know, he'll be, he'll be hopefully on his best behavior the whole year, because I, in all honesty, if, if he's as disruptive a presence as, as he has been in previous stops, uh, I have no doubt the Celtics will let him go. Like they, they won't keep him around. 
No, it's like very it's, low risk. It's, it's low risk. It's one year and it's less than $6 million. That's They'll let him go for that if he's not, uh, if he's not on his best behavior. Yeah. Now, what does the best case scenario for Boston look like? And how, how's, how do you go about achieving that? It's a good question. I, I, I think 50 wins, anything above 50 is, I, I think, gravy for, for, for Boston. It, it means a lot of things have gone right. It means that they've gone back to the defensive mindset that was the hallmark of, of Brad Stevens' teams prior to the last season. Um, and, I, and I think Udoka has talked about that a lot, about getting back to those defensive fundamentals that serve them really, really well. Um, so I think that's probably the, the primary reason. And I think it probably also means that there's a, there's a few Eastern teams that have fallen in a bit of a hole themselves. So we're probably relying on some other things to, to work in, in, in Boston's favour. So, you know, how does Philly look without Ben Simmons? And depending on who they get for him and how that w- works with their chemistry, I don't know, and how that works with their defence. You know, they, they, were, they were very good defensively because they had probably the best, you know, on-ball defender in the league and they won't have him. So how does that look? Does Atlanta not improve as expected? Things like that. If, if those sort of things come to pass, then, yeah, there's a real chance that, that Boston sneaks as high as, you know, a three seed even if, if everything goes right. But we, we both know that that, <laughs> that really happens. Yeah, and we're not even going to look. I'm not even looking at the quasar in Brooklyn. So, oh no, no. Um, yeah, look, that's that's a whole other kettle of fish, and you know, including you know everyone's favourite uh, flat earth theorist, you know, and and now it would appear anti vaxxers So, um, yeah, even the most no even the most ardent of uh, cough, Tom Reed cough, uh, is not claiming him as Australian anymore. <laughs> Tom and Tom and I ran that uh, ran that Aussie Kyrie for for a long time, but we've jumped off that horse. That's uh, that, that's a dog that will not hunt anymore, sir. Yeah. Um, just quickly with that best case scenario, then I guess the tack mm. on question: What's the best lineup? Yeah, look, I, I think it'll probably be if if you look at in the back court, it's probably going to be Smart and Josh Richardson. Your front court, Tatum and and Brown, and then probably it's it's almost certainly going to be Robert Williams. Certainly going to be Time Lord uh, as the centre. There'll there'll be a lot of juggling though. I I think it'll be a lot of horses for courses because if and certainly as I said, if if Horford has anything left in the tank, he will chop and change with Time Lord a lot. Um, and then you might even see some some bigger lineups where it's Horford and and Robert Williams together on court at the same time. Um, and then they'll 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 go with a big a big two in either Brown or Tatum. Now, as a long suffering Celtics fan with very little success in your lifetime, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I guess obviously <clears throat> the, the flip side of that, the worst case scenario, and one that Ugh. you know in a in a in a real you know fall through the rabbit hole uh, kind of you know character arc. One that could alter the franchise's long-term direction. I'm not sure there's a there's a situation that alters, you know, our, our long-term direction short of something absolutely catastrophic happening to both Tatum and Brown. Um, so I, that that's a worst-case scenario that doesn't I, I don't really want to even think about, to be honest. Um, but I think the worst-case scenario for Boston is, you know, they're 
the depth, which is better. Um, you know, the, the younger guards like Aaron Nee Smith and Peyton Pritchard don't make the expected improvements. I think, you know, if they if they do have some injuries um, to their better players, you know, God forbid, you know, someone like Tatum or Brown, um, or even Smart. You know, we, we we saw last year when 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 Marcus Smart was out, like he's the he's the ignition system for that team, not just on court, but for their their culture as well. So if he's out, you know, if any of those three are out for extended time, I, I think it becomes really challenging for Boston to maintain a you know, a home court advantage in the playoffs type seating. So I think worst case scenario, if, if any of those injuries come to pass, they they slide back not only, you know, to a lower playoff seating, but probably they slide all the way back to the lottery. And I think that's, you know, that's, that, 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 that's a worst case scenario. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you reckon that there might even be some, you know, rookie pressures for Yudoka in case he doesn't turn out to be that guy that everyone thought like because you know assistant to head coaches it's quite a leap so yeah, there's obviously that that worry I, I, I if, if it was a franchise that had a habit of making bad decisions without thinking about long-term you know strategy and things like that I, I might wait what are you saying consider that what are you saying nothing at all Ben nothing at all <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Um, and anything anything to suggest otherwise is defamatory. Um, no, no. I, I think, you know, the, that's a front office and ownership structure that has always taken a, a, a much longer-term view of things. Um, and you, you only even have to look back previously to when Doc Rivers was coach in the early days. And, you know, they had a season where it was 22 games straight at one point. You know, like it's... They they didn't can they didn't panic, and and they did end up winning a title. So you know I think they'll be very generous in terms of short of you know catastrophic talk about culture and you know if if the players decide that he's no good or you know anything like that. But I I just can't see anything like that happening. It's it's a fairly stable franchise that that doesn't do things like that. So I think and and if I think if everyone was fully healthy and and nothing worked and they didn't make the playoffs, then then you probably have a, a bit of a look at what went wrong. But I can't see them canning him mid-season. Unless uh, a Flat Earth Society sprung out or something. Oh, look, yeah, look, and God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about young guys and rookie-scale guys, and, you know, the the workers, the, the underrated guys, <laughs> to the point that they become so underrated, they're overrated. Uh, which one of those guys are you most excited for a breakout? Uh, it's probably both the, the guards and, and Aaron Neesmith and, and Peyton Pritchard. Both showed really good flashes last year. Um, Pritchard, especially for a second round pick, was was really, really solid early. Um, Neesmith took a little while to, to find his feet. Um, but the longer the season wore on, the more comfortable he started to look. Um, and he's, he's probably out of the two, he's probably the one I think who has a higher ceiling. Um, he's really good defensively and can shoot the absolute shit out of the ball. So I'm <laughs> really looking forward to him, uh, getting the green light. So I, I think those two, uh, will definitely have the most impact. And I think Boston need them to, to, to make that step up. Um, if, if they really want, you know, as we said, that 50 win mark. You say he can shoot the shit out of the ball, but he's not. He's no Sadiq Bay. Uh, 
or he's no Desmond Bain, or he's no insert mm-hmm. list of guys that they passed on and therefore they failed. Who? I don't know those names. I don't know him. Oh, they're just players that are better than the two <laughs> players you just listed. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Uh, are they Detroit players, Ben? Well, one of them isn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pritchard, it was interesting to me. He seems like, you know, admittedly the limited um, Boston I watched last year. So this might be a pretty lazy take on him. But he did seem almost like a, a bit of a mini Marcus Smart, maybe with a bit more skill than when Smart came into the league. But just that yeah, general role yeah. and being a bloody pest. Pest. Yeah, no, very much. And yes, you're right. Uh, much better shooter than Marcus was. Um, I think rookie Marcus, you could have uh, thrown him out of a boat and he wouldn't have hit the water. So, uh, you know, he was, Pritchard was, was really good, um, especially early. He just looked at home. Um, he, he generally made the right decisions. He never looked rushed, which is always a good sign in a rookie because you know that that step, especially if you ha- you know those co- all the rookies last year hadn't played for like what eight months, you know, before the NBA season started. No so, summer league. Yep. Yep. So yeah, no nothing. You know, no nothing. So he he was really good. I, and I just as a backup, you know, playmaker, he's just. He's ideal. Um, just hopefully we'll just maybe see a bit more of an offensive output from him this year. You, you're not expecting him to suddenly average 20 a game or anything like that. But um, I think that's that's the next logical step for him is to just slightly increase his output as his minutes go up as well. Yeah, you might have heard me chuckling when you said if you threw Marcus Smart out of the boat, you probably wouldn't hit the water. Because I just immediately thought of that video of Ben Simmons trying to throw a fish back into the water and it landing on the <laughs> on the deck. <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> we re- oh, there's too much Ben Simmons chat in this. Uh, if a player on the Celtics <laughs> is going to win an individual award or accolade, who and why? Uh, I think, you know, all the, all the talk's going to be around Tatum, really. Um, I think, obviously, I, I don't think he's going to win MVP or anything like that, but he's certainly an all-NBA conversation, um, you know, if, if, in terms of that. Um, I, I don't think really there's there's any other player that's going to make an impact the way he's you know tabbed like from all accounts he's he looks like he's put on a bit of size um, over the off season he had a really good Olympics after sort of a, a scratchy start but he sort of came together really well he was the you know Team USA's second leading scorer after after Durant so he really grew into that so he led um, the humans in scoring he did um, and would you believe Ben he's still only nineteen. <laughs> oh dear. it's incredible that's it's um i know you don't obviously i know you're not too invested in nrl but there's a guy who um he plays hooker for Parramatta. his name is ray stone and they were going on about him like you know i can't believe this is his second because it was in the finals or like late in the season he was playing big minutes when he's usually a bench guy and they're, oh i can't believe he's doing all this in his second game and then someone's like <laughs> he's played 27 games <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah no oh, i can't believe funny. tatum's 19 it's crazy yeah no just people and people never talk about it either no no yeah no, actually really i thought he was he's just been around a while i guess yeah no it's it's yeah. like tobias harris is also still 19 <laughs> is that former detroit piston tobias harris oh now that you've asked yes <laughs> uh a couple more things before we let you go obviously you're a huge betting man uh, and you would have seen the Vegas over under win total 
So Boston set at 46 and a half. Are you taking the under or the over? I had to think about this. I'm taking the over, but just. Like, I think, you know, I think that 47, 48 feels about right. Um, but that's that was really tough. Uh, I, I really struggled because you could just. That is the point in the lines, not, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, look, every year there's some that you think, oh, that's an easy, that's an easy one. Um, yep. But that one, that one I really had to think about. And just finally, you know, a prediction, it can be of a safe nature, a mild nature, a bold nature if you're so inclined, but just give us something. Um, I think it's somewhere between mild and bold, but if, if things don't go well, there'll be a slightly raised volume on the Jalen Brown trade talk. Right, you heard it here first. Inside sources from ESPN, Steve Smith. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, I, I could just see just some grumblings there if if things don't go well. Um, yeah, it, 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 I don't like it. I don't like seeing it because I think, you know, they're, they're both equally important to, to Boston's success. And I, I really, really like Jalen Brown, not just for his, for his on-court stuff. His off-court stuff is remarkable for such a young man. So Famously, I, I, not a moron. Famously, not a moron. Um, and uh, didn't tolerate any of Kyrie Irving's guff. Um, <laughs> so um, he, he gets a big tick in my book just for that alone. So um, Put that on the headstone. Famously, yep. not a moron. Not a moron. Didn't tolerate guff. Good word, guff. It is a good word. Um, underused. Underused. Um, so yes, that's that. That would be my sad trombone uh, prediction. I imagine it's a word most commonly used by your kids to describe you speaking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, he's got one in there, those, right at the end. Those, uh, th- those two, uh, they, they dunk on me a lot. They're like the uh, they're like Blake Griffin after he left Detroit. Okay, I was, I was happy to start and end with the joke about your daughters betraying you, but, you know, sick. <laughs> Actually, throwing that one in there right at the end, just a dagger in the heart. Where can our loyal two listeners follow you, find you, stalk you? Uh, the, they can find me spouting absolute guff on Twitter at, uh, at Steve Smith FFX. All right, and on that note, I think we'll let you go, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, I <laughs> no, hope my Celtics- pleasure lose every single game this year no it's been uh, it's been a delight and uh thank you for your support i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> see you next All time right. mate cheers thanks mate yeah. all right the Nets look at him bound jeff green gets it into durant here is durant moving on tucker he turns he shoots yes All right, the Beyond the Fence NBA season previews continue with the Brooklyn Nets and joining us today from the Brooklyn Buzz, it's Jack Manuel. Mate, how are you? Very well, Ben. Thanks for having me on. It's good to talk to another Aussie about basketball. I'm always talking to the goddamn Yankees. Yeah, yeah it's a common sentiment, I, I find. It's a very niche uh, but tight-knit community and then the Aussies get together and yeah, it's, it's always a good time. Absolutely. 
Now, usually when we start these little quick hit previews, I generally ask you, you know, how you're going heading into the season, how you're feeling. But I think the Nets, more so than other teams, have had a bit of a, a media storm recently with the the outspoken views of a certain longtime contrarian. What's going on with Kyrie, mate? Uh, now, I mean, you've told me before we off wax that you know we've got 25, 30 minutes. Now, <laughs> I'm not, not sure how much we're going to spend talking about Kyrie Irving, but. You know, I was chatting about it yesterday with my co-host of the Book and Buzz, um, Nick Fay, and we try not to delve too deep into it because it is an ongoing issue. And until it, there is some sort of sense of resolution, until you know, opening night, if Kyrie still isn't vaccinated or he doesn't play, you know, there is. I think the most recent thing that I saw that filled me with a bit of optimism and at least hope um, was the Vincent Goodwill piece from Yahoo Sports, which alluded to the fact that his relationship with Kevin Durant is actually pushing him towards being more likely to be vaccinated sooner rather than later. And I, I think I, I said to a couple of mates, I'm like, this is the greatest assist of Kevin Durant's career. He's just <laughs> dropped. Um, so hopefully that pans out how it does. He was at media day today. Um, not at media day, at training camp in San Diego, obviously had his media day and said personal reasons about 40 million times. So he looks happy. Everyone's talking trade Kyrie. I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit when we talk about, you know, narratives and such, but, it is an ongoing issue and something that I think and hope will be solved. Um, and a part of me is like maybe Kyrie's just trolling everyone like he does with flat earth stuff and so much other BS. But at the same time, maybe he's in the same camp as Andrew Wiggins and Bradley Beal, who's gone back and forth as well. So something that'll be played out, no doubt. And probably you'll have to have me back on to just talk about it and see if there is some resolution in the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't want to get, you know, too deep into it either. I do. I don't want to talk about Kyrie for half an hour because I'm sure we could do that. But I guess just before we move on, what is the um, the rules around the Nets? Is it the the whole home game scenario? You know, proof of yeah. and so on. It's yeah. the state mandates in New York. So yeah. basically, I think the Knicks are 100 vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and basically, if you showed up to media day at Barclays Center yesterday, you were vaccinated. And basically, every player did, except for Kyrie Irving. So the assumption can be made there that he wasn't, or he's just doing his Kyrie Irving sort of things. Yeah. And if he's not, he can play away games. But people opposing that aren't vaccinated on opposing teams can come in because it's if you don't live in the state, the rules don't apply to you. So it's a bit convoluted and complex. You know, apparently the the virus is 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 a thing. It's not a thing if you're an outsider who has been unvaccinated. It's only for New Yorkers, but you know that's uh, it's a, a really weird, wacky sort of thing. But ultimately, you know, there should be mandates across the NBA in general. But you know, the Players Association, including Kyrie, who is part of the the PA, I think he's the vice president in that. Obviously, has fought against that too. So. There's, it's a very complex issue it's going across all sports and hopefully by the time, you know, October 20-ish, you know, when we're around the, the horizon of the regular season, you know, we're not talking about this stuff and we're talking about hoops. Yeah, and that's a good segue. I like that. So let's move on. Uh, you mentioned narrative just before, you know, the NBA media loves narratives, the fan bases love narratives. So I guess from a Nets perspective, what do you think is the most prevalent narrative going into the season? I hate to repeat myself, but I think it's already started in trade Kyrie, trade Kyrie, trade Kyrie, Kyrie Irving, Kai, everything related to him. And, you know, if you're Stephen A. Smith, if you're Nick Wright, if you're someone on ESPN or some national platform, or if you're Matt Sullivan from Rolling Stone or or whoever else, you know, Kyrie Irving is going to be the number one topic about the team. I think that 
Kevin Durant's greatness will get lost a little bit in the wayside, James Harden, and, and his ability to just eke out regular season wins in a way that few players have done in, in the modern era. But it's going to be around Kyrie Irving, and to a lesser extent, probably the health and the defense. I think the defense narrative was the big one last year, but then we saw what happened in the postseason. The Nets were able to enact and, and engage in the defensive switching style in a pretty efficient sort of manner. I think they finished fourth in defensive rating throughout the postseason. And, you know, they gave Giannis and the Bucks some trouble despite, you know, not having their full cattle there either. Uh, so I think those are lesser light ones. I think for me, the, the one that I'm, I'm focusing most on is going to be health because I think that's going to be the biggest preventer, preventer or indicator of net success in general. You know, is KD going to have any muscle injuries related to his Achilles? Is James Harden... Is that hamstring injury going to linger? Is he now going to be more injury prevalent? But he hasn't been in, in the past. You know, he's as durable as superstar as he has been. And obviously Kyrie, um, generally injury prone or just availability prone, unavailability prone for certain reasons. But yeah, it's about that big three and how much time they can sort of play together and actually be on the court together. More than eight, nine games, hopefully. Yeah, and I guess with a star team like the Nets, there's always going to be the dirty words of load management you know, because the team is so obviously above, you know, 90% of the league from a talent perspective that they can pretty much afford to to coast certain games, you know, similar with the the Bucks probably this year or the, the Popovich Spurs when they had Kawhi and all those guys. So do you think that, that that'll factor in as well? That, that, you know, if there's even a doubt or not even a doubt, but just, you know, the load gets too high, that that'll probably factor in at some point. And even if they, you know, coast to a fourth seed, it probably doesn't matter. Yeah, we've already heard from Sean Marks and Steve Nash that the priority number one is health at the most important time. And despite the fact that there was, you know, a, a pretty unlucky injury with Kyrie Irving with the the, the Giannis unlucky box out and your hardened hamstring, I think that's probably a little bit more of an indicator of overexertion. We've sort of seen that the load management was a case with Kyrie with KD. KD played 35 games or 30-ish games last year, was rested on a lot of back-to-backs, um, but it allowed him to be... Kevin Durant when it mattered and play some pretty all world basketball and you know lead the team, um, lead his uh, national team to to a gold medal as well. So I think that it's going to be a thing. But I was speaking with um, Lucas Kaplan of Nets Republic on a pod that we'll have coming out uh, soon for the buzz. He thinks it's going to be similar to what was done this year in the fact that they'll play big minutes during the games, but they'll rest in the games in between. So you'll see thirty five to thirty eight minutes a night for those superstars but they'll miss a game against Detroit in February in a back-to-back or whatever, four games and five nights. But no, no, I think Detroit or Charlotte's always just the, the fallback <laughs> sort of, yeah. uh, for, uh, no, no, no slander to those fans. I'm, I'm looking forward to Cade Cunningham and, and the rest of what's happening in Piston land. No, well, you, you've done my job for me. I'm trying to work Detroit somehow to everything. And I had something planned for later, but you've done it already. So it's all good. Um, it's a nice... Uh, we'll move on to a nice little uh, segue because this is where I was going to bring it up. But, you know, transaction-wise, addition or loss, uh, what what do you think is going to have the largest impact on the team from that perspective? Look, if we're talking about a singular season impact, Ben, I think it's Paddy Mills. And I, I think that there's probably going to be some bias from me and you being, you know, the, the nationality that we are. Yes. Um, but big picture-wise, I think it's Kevin Durant and the extension that he signed. It's going to maintain the relevancy and contention for the Nets for the next four years. And the fact that he did it before James, before Kai, is just a vote of confidence from him. And you want it 
if you're picking out of those three, who do you want to be with your team long-term? Who do you want to be with the franchise? Who do you want to build around? It's Kevin freaking Durant, the best player in the NBA right now. So I think that is absolutely massive for the team and just the long-term trajectory and success that they could have. But Paddy Mills, the fact, I've sort of spoken about this on the buzz a few times, the fact that he chose to go to Brooklyn over Golden State, over the Lakers, is almost a, an even bigger win because those teams will be contending or, or thereabouts. And the fact that he chose Brooklyn above them, he seems to have already an immense rapport with with Kevin Durant. And I think I've saved about 400 photos of them hugging and and videos of them chatting and at the at the Olympics during the uh, medal ceremony. So I think that Patty Mills is obviously a, a massive ad. And I think that because the Nets backup guards last year were pretty shallow and poor you know Tyler Johnson I thought was underrated but Landry Shamit wasn't the the player that they thought he would be and look they had to get Mike James from freaking CSKA in Moscow to to fill in uh, because of the absence of Kai and James Harden so you now have Paddy Mills in that backup six-man sort of role Um, the consistency and reliability he's going to have for this team um, I'm expecting big things and I'm ridiculously excited yeah, there's always something different about, especially when you're not American, someone from your country. Like I had it with Baines and the Pistons a few years ago. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge coming back as well is an interesting one. Yeah, everyone, I think, assumed that he was, well, he was done. Uh, but what, what role do you think for him? It's, it's going to be like a, a similar role to Blake Griffin? Yeah, I mean, what he's, he started for the Nets when the Nets got him uh, as a buyout candidate, and he was really solid in the five games they did play. Obviously, the final game against the Lakers, you know, everyone was like, get Drummond instead. Why didn't they get Drummond instead? But, you know, as was revealed afterwards, um, he, he was talking about, you know, the hard issues that caused him to retire. Um, so I think it's interesting that the Nets front court is super stacked right now in a way that it hasn't been since I've been a Nets follower. You know, you got Paul Millsap, who I think is more of a five. Blake Griffin, who was incredible in the postseason and probably is the only guy that I would, you know, nullify as that probably starter because he's done it, he's proven it before, but maybe the minutes change and I want it to be Claxton. Um, but that's a discussion that we can probably have a, a little bit as well. But yeah, they, they are so stacked in that big man position. I think LaMarcus is, it could play sparingly. Um, I, I think he's going to be fighting. You know, he looked pretty good in, some of um, the the training camp videos hitting the three ball, and he did hit the three ball quite well. Um, you know what he provide. He said, you know, in, in the media day that like he saw what he could provide the best team in the NBA, and that the fact that he couldn't be out there and helping them was something that motivated him and unfinished sort of business. He said that there were a couple other teams that were looking for his services. I think Miami was probably one of them, given that they were the other rumored team last last season in, uh, in the buyout market as well. So. I, I honestly can't predict what the front court rotation is going to be because there's a lot of guys there in a, in a way that is a strength but could also be interpreted as a weakness is because they don't really have a heap of wing depth either. Well, they've got Seiku Dumbuya. Like, what do you... Yeah. <laughs> Team Seiku. I'm, already, I'm a Seiku stand as well, my friend. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, a, it was a tough notification to wake up, wake up to. Um, but, you know, we, we move on. What is uh, it with the Nets and the Pistons just like... <laughs> Sean Marks swindling uh, the front office in Detroit. You know, Bruce Brown, now Seiku. Like, it, it's just, what is it? What's Troy Weaver? It's Troy Weaver, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah what I, is I, it? It's a weird one. I don't know that Seiku, I don't think, was much of a swindle. I think, um, you know, he was, a pre, he was the only, for some reason, he was the only holdover from the previous regime. So I think, you know, right. he was kind of... Oh, uphill battle already the Bruce Brown one was always an odd one I don't I don't know 
I mean, it it netted Sadiq Bay, so I can't be too mad in the end. But it, it you know, you, you see, I guess, what the Pistons lacked last year. And then Bruce Baum was, yeah, I don't know. It, it's an odd one. Um, we're used to being swindled, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, I recorded the Milwaukee one yesterday, and I guess this is going to be a similar answer from the Nets perspective, but a best case scenario like Milwaukee, obviously, it was just back to back. Like it, it's just happened, basically, the best case scenario. But from the Nets' perspective, it's got to be similar, right? Yeah, it's it's championship or bust for this team, and uh, I think that the worst case scenario in that sort of stat, status as well is what happened last year, and the fact that the injuries prevent them from getting to and reaching those heights. And you know, they have the talent on paper, and they have a, a weird amount of depth for a contending team as well. That will allow them to, as you alluded to earlier, load manage a little bit. You know, Kai's not going to have to play all games. James Harden's not going to have to play a heap of games. KD won't have to play, you know, a heap of games as well. They're not going to have to play all 82 now that we're back to a full 82-game season. There's guys that can step up, you know, be it rookies in Cam Thomas or, you know, Seiku can throw some minutes out there. You've got James Johnson in the wings uh, too. So there is just a, a weird amount of depth that should allow and hopefully – uh, the team will will have the the right guys healthy at the right time because I, I can't see and, and look obviously I'm going to be subjectively biased about it but I thought last year if the, if the Nets had have had Kai or James that they probably could have taken that series against Milwaukee and then likely probably win the championship as well against the Suns um, if you watch how Kevin Durant played yeah um, you'd be almost blind if you didn't think so uh, as well and the fact that Kyrie what the Nets were doing in those first two games as well was destroying Milwaukee Bucks. And game three, they were like, played awfully and they still only beat them by like three, four single digit points. So look, it's a different universe, a different multiverse, probably the Nets could be champions. But this year, this season, um, the Nets are favourites and are favourites for a good reason, given everything they have on their roster, the additions in the off season, um, and the fact that Kevin Durant has solidified himself as the best player in the NBA. Yeah, it's, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because famously Kevin Durant likes to list his height as lower than what he is, but then he wears a shoe size up and that not to bring it yeah. up. And, <laughs> but you know, the fine, sorry, the fine margins. It's, I just can't pick cause I just can't picture. It just it feels odd to me. The, uh, an extra size, surely your feet are loose and sliding around, but I don't know. I think maybe it's something about basketball shoes. I think that I go slightly bigger with basketball shoes as well, but like, I don't know which ones you wear. I go for the Kyrie's like I've got a pair of Katie's. I've got a pair of Dane's. Katie's ones are too thin for my foot, and Kai's are just like I don't know, they're the most comfortable shoe that I have. Uh, I've just got, I just have a hyperdunks with the the inbuilt sock. But I'll be honest, most of my sports shoe purchases are mainly for looks. So I've got, so I like to wear black socks. So my hyperdunks are the all black ones with um, you know, some like light blue or uh, from twenty seventeen or eighteen, I think. So nice, yeah, they're, they're very it, black is slimming, and that's the uh, <laughs> that's mainly what I'm going for. Um, on a flip side, you know, best case scenario is obviously championship or bust, but what's a worst case scenario? I think the, the worst case, Ben, is just that it's health, it, that they are not healthy. And the same thing happens last season and it happens against this season. History repeats itself. And there is a likelihood of that happening. It's why, you know, for me, it's the biggest prevailing narrative, as, as I alluded to a little bit earlier. It's going to be health. And look, will there be maybe Kyrie Irving vaccine things and other things relating to that? Maybe, but I think the fact that he's with Kevin Durant, I think Kevin Durant is a a good influence in a weird way, as we sort of touched on a, a tad, but it's just going to be health. It's going to be health and the injury status of all these players. And will they have the time to gel? Will the rotation be set in stone? Do they have, you know, eight or nine guys that can credibly play in the postseason? Because 
they barely had four um, last year, to be to be honest. Yeah, and then you've obviously, I think, from an outsider's perspective, it's just the depth isn't as advertised. Um, you know, the guys that maybe played a little bit above their station last year, like Bruce Brown and Joe Harris is a very good player, but I think even you have to admit he was probably, you know, as good as he probably could have been last year. Uh, a great season for him. So maybe those extra guys don't hit those same levels again. And then all things remain the same with the load management. They maybe sleepwalk through the season. Um, and then, you know, it's always going to come down to health for these contending teams as a worst case scenario. It's not going to be like a team that's selling out to make the the play in like the Bulls might've done last year. And then, you know, it all basically goes to shit. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty similar answer. Uh, it was actually the same answer with Milwaukee, you know, because you don't want to say the obvious, you know, X, Y, Z to star player because that that's just bad. You don't want to put that out there. But realistically, yeah, it's it's going to take some pretty serious stuff. You mentioned earlier uh, Nicholas Claxton, and I'm wondering if he's the answer for this question, but the, the underrated guy that you're excited for a breakout yeah, it's super duper hard for me. Uh, Clax, I'm so high on Claxton that I've you know invented a goddamn nickname for the guy in Clax City. But you know, Paddy Mills is obviously a- another one. Um, Cam Thomas, Killer Cam, what he did in the summer league filled me with so much optimism and enthusiasm. Uh, but I, I'm not sure where the minutes are going to be for him. And to go way off the board, it's not going to be your boy Seku Demboya, but Javon Carter. I'm really, really intrigued to what he could provide this team in a way that. You know, the Nets acquired him because they thought Bruce Brown could have been um, on his way out and, and, and got a bigger payday elsewhere. But Javon Carter's tenacity, his defense, what he, he's done across his NBA career, short NBA career, mind you, he can hit the three ball. He's going to guard guys 94 feet. Um, he's a goddamn menace. He's Bruce Brown reincarnated in a lot of respects, but with a better three-point shot and maybe more tenacious defense at that guard position. So there's so many guys. Uh, it, it's weird because you think that, in a lot of superstar teams, you're not really caring about, you know, guys 8 to 12 on the roster. But for me, I'm as excited for Nicholas Claxton and Javon Carter as I am for Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Uh, does, does Javon Carter like touching people like Pat Beverly likes touching people? Look, I think Javon Carter, everyone's talked about, I think a couple, someone might have responded to a tweet I put out where it was like Javon Carter... Avery Bradley was saying like how he's the best man-to-man defender in the NBA. And I just put a clip out of Javon Carter guarding someone 94 feet. And then it's just like, oh, he just, he's Pat Beverly, but he's not a, you know, a dickhead. Yeah, and yeah, I'm no. like, look, I'll take that. I'll take that in a heartbeat. Mm. Yeah. And even James Johnson, I guess, fits into this mold as well. Uh, and I guess we thought that was the reason he signed with Dallas. Uh, sorry, why Dallas signed him was to bodyguard Luca. And I guess when you've got these these stars, it's always nice to have a bit of, you know, quote-unquote muscle. Yeah. And and I think that previously the Nets have been accused of being soft or whatever. And it was like back in the day, Torian Prince was a tough guy. And then, you know, acquiring Blake, funnily, funnily enough, Blake was just always that dude. He's always a, a bit feisty and, and just a bit of a, an instigator in, in a lot of ways. But now you add James Johnson who... I certainly wouldn't want to meet in a in a one on one setting. And Javon Carter and Bruce Brown, Bruce Brown's shoulders, I like. He he could play NRL. He could play for your is it the Panthers who you follow? He could play for them and absolutely freaking dominate. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you know Blake Griffin remembered how to dunk again. That was nice to see. <laughs> 
Um, you're a bit spoiled for choice for this one, but if there is a guy in the Nets that's going to win an individual award or accolade, who is it? And you can include, you know, all NBA, all those sorts of things as, as well. Look, I listed so many players because I'm just in- inherently biased, but if I'm going with one, I'm going with one that probably a lot of people wouldn't expect. And I think I've spoken about it a little bit, whether it's on the buzz or on Twitter somewhere. Um, I think James Harden is the most likely MVP contender on the Nets roster right now. What we saw from him when he acclimated and when he settled in Brooklyn last year, it was him, it was Jokic, and it was LeBron. And the only thing that a lot of people were taking away from Harden was, you know, the eight to 10 games in, in Houston where he was just walking and, and, and going through the motions. Um, you could obviously make a very credible argument for the best player in the league being an MVP contender. It's pretty easy, but I think Harden is going to have the ball in his hands so much. He's probably going to lead the league in assists. His efficiency is probably going to be out of this world. Um, I just, I don't know, I just have this weird inkling about Harden being an MVP contender yet again and maybe averaging close to a triple-double. It's always the thing with these loaded teams that the risk and maybe load management mitigates that somewhat, but, you know, they take votes off each other. So if anything's going to stop that, it's probably going to be that. But I guess also to that point, do you think Harden is the most likely to play the most games out of the three then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've sort of seen that, you know, in the the games, the solo Harden games were some of the best individual season games last year. The, you know, the, the Phoenix Suns comeback is one of my favorite regular season games that, that I've seen since, you know, D'Angelo Russell and, and Ronda Hollis-Jefferson against those Sacramento Kings. So I think Harden is going to want to play as much as possible. He said, I, I believe, uh, I saw a, a Nets beat reporter sort of say that he wants to be MVP. Um, he's, he's obviously... Uh, an MVP, he's going to be an MVP caliber player until you know he, he loses a, a bit of his he, a bit of his spring and such. But he's just so goddamn skilled, and there are a few guys that I think have the the motivation to produce night after night after night and have that sort of tendency to just go out there and and produce at a high level. And I think James Harden is is one of those guys that just wants to go out there hoop nonstop. Um, he's yelling and, and making you know goddamn noise at, at media days and interrupting you know Blake Griffin's media session with the, the Yes Network. Um, I think he's a, a genuine chance, and I think that his odds are, are sneaky, pretty good as well. Is there any smoke behind the Patty Mills for six man? I think look, it's it's going to probably go to someone who I think will score more. You know, I think you know Jordan Clarkson, Lou Williams, whoever else. The Lou Williams Memorial Award, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, but I think that in a similar way that I thought a couple of years ago, Spencer Dimley was the sixth man of the year before he ended up becoming a leader during you know, injuries and such to the Nets team. Another piston. If you look at just pure value, then Paddy Mills is, could be the most valuable sixth man in, in, the, in the league in a way that, you know, Andre Godala has been in season past for, for the Golden State Warriors. So I think that I, I, I wouldn't put it, but I'd put him certainly in the, the top five to top eight of, of contenders for that award because you know, the eyes and the lights are going to be in Brooklyn. If he's having a few 20-point nights here or there, a few hot shooting nights combined with, you know, just the the attention that they're going to have from the national media and the spotlight that they're going to have, um, it, it certainly wouldn't pass it. And look, sneakily, Steve Nash could be a coach of the year contender as well. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, but on Mills, yeah, you've got media darling plus big market. It, it seems like a recipe. Uh, a couple more quick hitters just before we go. I don't know how much of a betting man you are, but Brooklyn's over-under is set at uh, 55 and a half. Are you taking over or under? I would take over if they are healthy because they had 48 wins last year, which is about 54, 55 win pace. And 
the amount of games that they were available was, you know, we knew how much they were, weren't available. So if you get some semblance of health, then this team is going to be closer to 60 games at 55. And I guess finally, we all love a, a prediction that's going to come back to haunt us later in the season. So you can go whatever, you know, uh, hot take level you want to go, but what, what's a safe, mild, bold prediction for you for the season? Look, I had all three, mate. I, I did my I did my homework. I, my safe one is, and I mentioned it earlier, that Harden will lead the league in assists. I think LeBron will be the only contender for that. Uh, my mild prediction is that the Nets break their own record for best offensive rating. You know, last season at 118.3, I believe. I think that, you know, if they have the superstars healthy, they're going to jack that up to close to 120. Um, and the bold one, obviously, you know, I touched on it a little bit earlier with the Harden MVP one, but I'll go 16 and one in the finals. I'll go, I'll go, they, they do what Golden State did in, in seasons past because they have the capacity to be as dominant as any team we've ever seen. Talent wins championships, health, healthy talent wins championships, sorry. And if the Nets have healthy talent, they have the roster to be as dominant a team um, that we've seen in, in, you know, in the modern era. Yeah, I hope to experience this level of optimism one day. <laughs> Dude, I was like, uh, when I started a podcast with my Aussie mate five years ago, he's a Wizards fan, I'm a Nets fan. Back then, I was talking about Sean Kilpatrick and the Nets signing Jeremy Lin and losing my goddamn mind about that. Um, and Rondé Holtz-Jefferson leading the team in scoring. And it's full circle now. Uh, Kilpatrick was very good, though. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Sean Kilpatrick and, you know, a bit of Isaiah Whitehead action. Always got soft spots for some of those lesser-known Nets guys. The, the, the doggies guys, yeah. Absolutely. You know, the ones that make you appreciate the what you got now. Uh, where can our listeners find you, follow you, all that good stuff? Now, I'm on Twitter at the JMAN, JBT. Um, subscribe to the Brooklyn Buzz um, wherever you get your podcasting platforms um, and also occasionally doing uh, the Just Ball Things NBA podcast. Just a general one, a bit like Ben does. So if you want another decent Aussie to listen to, um, chat hoops, make some jokes and make some Sean Kilpatrick jokes along the way. <laughs> Just Ball Things NBA podcast on YouTube as well. Oh, YouTube. Wow, very fancy. Yeah. Uh, with all that said, Jack, thanks for your time. Um, Hopefully your nets go well this season for your sake. And uh, yeah, appreciate you having you on. Thanks for having me, mate. Rose drives, kicks it back out. Lee the fake. Corner, Lance Thomas three. Bang! Knocked loose back out to Anthony. Cross court Lee. Lee for three. Bang! Projection of the game. Anthony fires away a three. Bang! Carmelo Anthony from downtown. Sticking with him. Walker tried to draw a foul. Anthony for three. Bang! Knicks take the lead with four. On the drive. Bibby from the corner. Bang! Robinson catches. Robinson shoots the three-pointer. Bang! Robinson from downtown. But Porzingis grabs it. Here comes a flower. Back out. Porzingis puts up a three. Bang! Porzingis another three, and it's a four-point game. Porzingis puts up a three. Bang! Prestaps Porzingis. Double-teamed again. Looking, finds Porzingis, corner three. Bang! Lynn puts it up. Bang! Jeremy Lynn from downtown, and the Knicks take the lead. 
Okay, joining us now to talk all things New York Knicks from the Daily Knicks fan sided site writer, Jeff Campbell. How are you? Doing great, Ben. Uh, very, very happy and um, to, that you invited me on and very excited to talk Knicks today. For sure, for sure. I guess just on a general level, how are you feeling going into the season? I feel pretty good. I think that's a weird thing to say as a Knicks fan. Um, not something that we've we've said in a while, but you know, there's a very solid foundation for this team top to bottom. You know, I, I think the front office has made some prudent moves. They've um, they've kept a hold of, of their draft picks. They've drafted well. We have money to spend. We've developed some players. We have a coach that's been competent. And, um, you know, he's been able to motivate the players to play in, in the system that he wants. So, um, I, you know, I'm I'm very excited for this season. We're we're very much looking to build on uh, the the first round playoff exit last season. It it is an odd thing, isn't it? Because I think if you've been even remotely part of the online NBA fan base, you just see a lot of Knicks. I don't know what the word you'd call for it, but yeah, a lot of doomsday scrolling. Um, so yeah, it is odd to see as a neutral observer of the Knicks. I guess just overwhelming positivity around the fan base. Um, especially, you know, the New York media and all that sort of stuff. It can get a bit intense at times. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we are, we've, we've been very much accustomed to being the laughing stock and the butt of many jokes. Um, things are turning a little bit, but I, you know, I think most, most fans still have a little bit of that PTSD. I don't think we're, we're fully embracing this, this role of, of, you know, expecting something good to happen. So I think we're, we're cautious in that in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there an overwhelming narrative that's surrounding the team going into this season? I would think. I think so. I think um, you know, once Leon Rose became the president of basketball operations, everyone knows that um, he was the former head honcho at CAA. They they know that he's got um, a lot of connections in the NBA in different areas, and I think. Most people, myself included, expect the Knicks to make some type of swing for uh, maybe the next disgruntled star, whether that's Carl Anthony Towns, Bradley Beal, who knows, right? Damian Lillard, there were some rumors over the summer. So I think that that, from a national standpoint, is going to be the prevailing narrative. You know, like who who will the Knicks swing for? But I've been actually a little bit more impressed with their patience I know that they've been in a lot of rumors but I haven't seen them pull the trigger on any um, trades that that would really kind of hamstring us or maybe um, you know where, where we kind of wouldn't have the leverage so I kind of trust this front office which again is weird to say but I, I trust them to be measured and patient in their approach I trust them to find the right deal for the right player um, and the other narrative maybe within the fan base is is just kind of one step at a time. I think we're we're all looking forward to seeing RJ Barrett take the next step. We're all looking forward to seeing how quickly he plays and and maybe you know if he can kind of flesh out a little bit more of his creative point guard skills. We're seeing we want to see even some of the young guys, you know, can Mitch come back after a season where he was injured for a lot of the time and maybe reclaim that starting center spot and and really take the next step in his growth as well. So I think there's a couple of different narratives, but for Knicks fans, I think we just, we want to see the team just take the next step. And with being the 
New York Knicks, obviously the market expectations and all that sort of stuff, there's always going to be rumors of swinging for stars, like you said. So are you at all worried that, yeah, let's say they have a reasonably good start to season and then they do make a short-sighted swing for the fences? Yeah, I'm definitely worried because I've seen it happen before. Um, And I think when you have something shiny sitting in front of you, it's it's hard to say no to it. Um, But again, until this front office proves otherwise, I'm going to trust them. I've seen no moves thus far, um, no signings, uh, no trades, no draft picks where I was left truly scratching my head. Um, a lot of people didn't like the Tom Thibodeau hire when when he was hired, and it proved that and it proved to be a, a very successful hiring at least after the first season. Um, even some of the draft picks, you know, Emmanuel quickly was taken a little bit later. Uh, I know a lot of people like Miles McBride; he kind of fell to us this year. So, and and the team this off season too instead of maybe throwing bigger money at, at some bigger names, I thought made some good signings, obviously Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier. So I'm worried that they'll make a big swing and, and kind of, um, you know, mess up the chemistry of the team, but I'm, I wouldn't put a high percentage on it. I'd say if I had to put something, I'd say I'm like 20 to 30% worried that that'll happen. I don't think it's likely. Yep. Yep. Uh, whether addition or loss, is there a specific transaction that they've made in the last during the offseason that you think will have the largest impact on the Knicks? Yeah, it was it was a very interesting offseason. Um, I think I think if you want to be slightly critical, you could say that the money given to Nerlens Noel as a, as a backup center was maybe a bit much, but he was a big part of their success last year, especially when Mitchell Robinson got hurt. Um, I really do think that it's kind of a tie. I want to give Evan Fournier the lead a little bit over Kemba Walker as the signing that I think will make the biggest impact. Um, but I think Fournier's shot creation, his ability to hit threes, um, I think is really going to help this Knicks offense. I, you never want to take too much from preseason, but they look like a completely different offense with, with him in it and Kemba as well. Um, and I just think those two guys together are going to make things a lot easier for Julius Randle um, to to not feel like he has to shoulder the entire scoring load, um, playmaking load, and rebounding load uh, for this team every night on the court. Are you at all worried that maybe they've overpaid for Fournier? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they overpaid a little bit. I, I, I still think or Evan Fournier is a really good player. I, I, um, I used to do a podcast with, with one of my good friends, um, Chip Murphy, and he is a huge Fournier guy. And um, he's written a lot of articles about how underrated his playmaking is and even his defense. He comes from a Steve Clifford team uh, in the Orlando Magic where he previously played Clifford and Tom Thibodeau have been very close throughout the years. So I, I think they overpaid a little bit, but I, I just think that his skills at where he is in his career, he's not an older player. Um, I think this is a good signing for the Knicks. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's a, a contract that you can't trade. I, I think even as Fournier ages, you know, he's still going to be able to shoot. So I think he yeah. has some skills that, 
are going to be attracted to other teams, even if he doesn't work out with us. But I, I don't see a reason why he wouldn't. I, I He's not a player that commands a lot of the ball. Um, I think he plays well with a lot of different types of players. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not too worried that maybe we gave him a little bit more than, than market value. Yeah. I think Fournier is definitely one of those guys that, like you said, as he ages, his style of play doesn't change too much and it's not too dependent on his physical attributes. So I think, yeah, even because right. he's 29 in a couple of weeks, even two, three years down the road, if he might be slowing down a bit, he's still got that effectiveness. It might be a little bit much by the end of it, but it's not definitely not untradeable. Um, what, what does a best case scenario look like for the Knicks this year? Man, if everything breaks right, um, wow. You know, I've I've heard some fans, you know, talk about. Uh, I think I think if everything breaks right, if we don't have any injuries, and this team looks like they do in the preseason, you know, we could be looking at a top four seed. Maybe um, I don't think we'll win the division. I think even without Kyrie Irving. I think the Brooklyn Nets will still run away with this thing pretty easy with, with Kevin Durant, James Harden. Um, but, you know, I, and, and, you know, Philly will obviously be really good as well, but I think that, I think that the Knicks, if everything breaks right, could be a top four seed. I think that would be the best case scenario for them. Um, it would, it would take a lot to get there. I think that, you know, from a talent perspective, we'll always be behind some of the big teams in the East. And I even think some teams that are not getting talked about a lot, like the Miami heat are going to be really good this year. I'm very interested to see how Boston is. I I don't think they'll be as bad as they were last year. And I think just Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown continuing to get better is, is a very formidable duo to, to be against. Um, And then the Hawks, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't, Ah, that that playoff loss was so rough um, <laughs> against them, but they're such a great team and they're very young. So there's a lot of a lot of teams that that are going to be good in the East. Yeah, and um, I think if everything breaks right, we could get top four. But that that means that you know we are playing really like out of our skulls. Do you think then for a best case scenario for the Knicks, is it more likely to be high level of play or probably a bit of you know, luck with other teams underperforming or injuries like that? I would say it's probably a little bit more of luck from other teams. I, I think that, I think our defense is our biggest asset. I think in the regular season, the Knicks find a way to just out effort teams. Um, that necessarily is not the case in the playoffs. But I, if I'm being honest, I think that if we were to truly get, um, the fourth seed, it, it's probably more due to the fact that maybe some key players on some other teams got hurt or, or maybe they underperformed for whatever reason, um, just because there's there's a fair amount of talent in the East. Yeah, yeah I think what's going to help the Knicks, at least in a regular season perspective, is everyone knows by now that Thibodeau doesn't rest players or he doesn't load manage oh. like the degree of other other teams and you look at I guess the upper echelon of the east you know Milwaukee will probably load manage Giannis to a certain extent um Brooklyn their guys are going to miss time it's almost inevitable just by you know how important they are especially with the whole Kyrie situation so I do think that's almost like an avenue for the Knicks to get that top four just because the other teams kind of piss it in in the regular season yeah I could definitely see that I guess then on the flip side what's the worst case scenario Man, um, 
you know, I've, I've talked about, about this a lot. I've seen the, the, the discussion kind of um, discussed a lot on, on, you know, NBA Twitter, of course, and Knicks Twitter. I think the worst case scenario, it would probably be that we are either in the eighth seed or in the play-in tournament. I think that, um, you know, for whatever reason, if this team doesn't gel or we have injuries, I, I, I get, you know what, let me, let me be a little bit more specific. I, I don't, I really don't think this team is not going to gel. I, I think it's very hard for me to believe even just what I've seen in the preseason already. They just, they look very, very um, organized and they look like they understand where everybody wants to be on the court, uh, how they're supposed to run through their sets um, so I'm not worried about chemistry at all. If they really fall apart, it's got to be due to injury. Um, you know, one of the big players, uh, you know, getting, getting hurt for a significant amount of time. Um, you know, so in, so in that case, even then, I think we have a decent amount of depth. I think the worst case scenario is like the AC or the play in tournament. Yeah. Is there a guy on this team that maybe we're not talking about that you're you're really excited for a potential breakout year? Um, I don't think we're not talking about him. Um, you know, I think I think Knicks fans. I think interestingly enough, this summer, I know Knicks fans took a lot of offense to this. I didn't worry about it too much, but. Um, you know, RJ Barrett seemed to have been left off a lot of top 25 under 25 or whatever lists, depending on who you talk to, that's either, you know, blasphemy or, or not. But I, I really think RJ Barrett is a winning player in the NBA. I'm very excited. I, I do think I'm probably in the minority of Knicks fans that think that, his shooting numbers were maybe a little bit of an aberration last year. I mean, um, traditionally and historically, he, he was really not a good shooter. Um, but he, he obviously had a, a major uh, breakout year from the free throw line and, of course, from three-point percentage last year. But this year with the added talent, I'm really interested to see what his usage is like, how much of a focal point they make him in the offense and how much he um, continues to improve on his shooting. So it's, I think people are talking about him, um, maybe not on a national scale, but Knicks fans certainly are. But, but he is the guy that I am the most excited to see um, in year three of his development. What are your expectations for someone like Obi Toppin then? Obi, uh, you know, it's funny. I was a very big Obi Toppin guy coming out of college. A lot of people were very low on him. Um, the low center of, of, of gravity, stiff hips, really poor defense, but um, very good offensive skills in kind of a tailor-made pick-and-roll offense in college. Um, he played very well. The beginning to his career was not great. Uh, he very much looked like a fish out of water but came on late and, and got, you know, around 10 to 11 minutes a game last year. My expectations, and I'm already happy that I've seen some of this, is just to look more confident on the court. In summer league and preseason, he's already done that. He looks way more decisive with his movements, his cuts, his decision-making. He doesn't 
weight with the ball in his hands anymore. He's either, you know, passing it right off to a guard or moving to set a screen or trying to um, set up his own shot. I'm very happy about that. Uh, defensively, it looks like he has a much better understanding of what Coach Thibodeau wants from him. Um, my expectations are that he gets at least close to or above double-digit um, points for this season. I would like him to average at least uh, six to eight rebounds a game. Um, you know, I think as a as a big, uh, even more of like a versatile big, that's got to be something that he's, um, you know, getting closer to or, or doing more on a frequent basis. Um, and hitting open threes with more confidence. I think teams are going to leave him open in some areas because they don't trust him yet. He's got to make people pay. So those are really the things I'm expecting uh, to see from him this year. Yeah. Um, is there anyone on the team that you think, or who's the most likely to win one of those individual awards? I would say... Hmm. Do you want me to go first? I've got an answer for this one, for the Knicks. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Give, well, give, I'd love to hear yours. I think, well, I think Derek Rose is the obvious. He's always going to be in that six-man conversation yeah. assuming uh Kemba takes over the start I admittedly I'm not sure what the rotation is going to be like um and then also I, I'd say RJ's probably a little bit too good last year to be that most improved candidate because you won't have the numbers jump that the voters right. like to look for um or even someone like you know I think the most likely Knicks ward because Randall last year obviously dominated that most improved conversation but it'd be either Rose or maybe even Alec Burks for a six-man nod just because, you know, the voters love points. I was actually just thinking about Alec Burks. Uh, Alec Burks is is one of my favorite players on this team. He's actually somebody, we were having the conversation earlier about not being talked about enough. Um, I think he's such a huge part of this team because he uh, not only fulfills a scoring need, but he can play make as well. If you look at his clutch numbers, he's a very efficient scorer in the fourth quarter. Um, I like that pick. I'll I'll be a little bit of a... Um, you know, classic Knicks Twitter guy here. And I'll say quickly, you know, quickly could potentially be like a little bit of a most improved because I, you can tell that the Knicks want to give him the ball a lot. You can tell that they want him to try and be a point guard. They also want him to score. So he's going to have opportunities. Do I honestly feel like he's going to challenge for that award? No, but um, you know, I think that's maybe a name to look out for, but I actually, I really like that Alex Burke uh, six-man-of-the-year pick as well. Yeah, and look, someone we haven't even spoken about much at all is Julius Randle. And I don't, he's obviously not going to win most improved tiers in a row, but he could be in line for you know another All-Star or an All-NBA bid as well. Um, I guess we just need to take a little bit of time to talk about his expectations for this year as well. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I think... You know, the forward positions um, are always pretty, pretty deep. I I don't, you know, what's funny, I, I really believe that his numbers will take a bit of a dip this year, but I don't think it's going to hurt the team. I think that that's probably the most important piece. Um, I think just by adding Kemba and Fournier, now listen, Kemba's health has uh, never been great, especially of late. So, you know, that that's something to consider. But I I do think that uh, his numbers will take a dip. I think there's still a chance he could 
um, you know, get an all-star selection, an all-NBA selection. The thing that I love about Julius is that he takes matchups personally and on the defensive end, especially, um, I think he's an underrated defender. I think he did a really, really great job last year. So, um, you know, I, I expect him, uh, man, I mean, last year, what he averaged, what, 24, 10 and, and six, six or something yep. like that. Yeah. 24, so, 10, six. You know, honestly, I expect him to be closer to like 22, eight and four, you know, something like that, but, but still efficient from the field and from the three point line. I, I just, I hope maybe defensively is maybe where he gets more of, of um, his accolades this season or, or where maybe people nas- on a national level are talking about him more because I think that's such a big part of his game. Yeah, and I mean, even the shooting, he went from a 27, uh, 28% two years ago to 41 last year it, on massively increased volume as well. It was just right. such an unforeseen leap in efficiency. Um, so I think inevitably he's probably going to dip a little bit, re- regress a little bit to that mean. But like you said, the added offensive weaponry around him should at least give him more space. And I don't think he'll have to take as many threes this year as well either. No, I don't think he will either. but. You know, it's so interesting. You're just talking about um, the dip, and I, and I know I talked about it too. I remember I actually had the chance to talk to his trainer, uh, Tyler Ralph. I forget whether this is a year ago or a year and a half ago at this point. Um, but, you know, the thing I keep forgetting about Julius sometimes is he is really, really a tireless worker. Uh, the amount of work he puts into the summer and the shots that you see him take on the court the, the repetition that they do, it's, it's really insane. And even uh, Tyler told me that other NBA players, when they come into the gym and they see Julius there, they literally want no part of how mm-hmm. hard he works, like, or how hard he's going to push them. So I do think, again, I agree with you. I think the number will take a dip. I, I just think that that, that increase is, is so crazy. Right. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think it'll be a huge dip. Um, just because of how much work he puts into it. And he's, he's also very motivated to prove to fans um, and anyone outside that, that last year was not a one-off, you know, that it was not some type of fluke because he's been hearing that. And, and I know that he's going to be very motivated to prove people wrong in that sense. Yeah. And I do agree with you that I don't think it'll hurt the team much, even if his numbers do take a little bit of an expected dip. Just a couple of quick ones before we let you go. Um, I ask everyone this. I've looked at NBC's uh, win lines for each team. And to me, the Knicks are a little bit low at 40 and a half. Are you over or under on that? I'm definitely over. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I expect them to win 50 games. I think that's that's a lot. Um, you know, I, I do expect this team to win at least 43 or 44 games. I, I would... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say I would be shocked if that doesn't happen. But um, you know, this is a team that is returning a good amount of people from last year. Um, you know, you essentially only lose Reggie Bullock from the starting lineup, but I'm not sure defensively how much that will hurt him. It doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like from a shooting standpoint, at least what I've, from what I've seen so far, it will hurt them that much. But. Um, you know, I would definitely take the over on that. Um, you know, I think I think they'll win. I, I'm I'm going to go with 45 games this year. 
Um, and it'll be very interesting to see kind of how they get there. But uh, I, I would I would bet comfortably on the over and, and feel pretty good about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and finally, I ask everyone to give me a prediction. I, I like bold predictions more, but, you know, whatever you've got brewing up there, what have you got? Oh, bold, bold prediction for the Knicks? Yeah. Man, um, that's a good one. I will say... Um, all right, I have one. Uh, the, anyone who hears this on Nick's Twitter will probably eviscerate me. <laughs> I think there's a chance that um, Mitchell Robinson will be traded uh, by the trade deadline. Okay, and I, I know how much that, <laughs> I know. I know how much the Knicks fans love Mitchell Robinson. Um, I know it, it's like I don't know that they love him so much, but I I know that there's a lot of people that are very high on him. I am too. I like Mitchell a lot. I just think that. Um, there's just this like weirdness, I think that surrounds his standing on the team and, and how much the front office values him. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to say that Nerlens Noel did everything that Mitch could do on the court because he can't and offensively, like he can't catch a ball. Sometimes his hands are like two cinder blocks. Yep. Um, you know, Mitch, Mitch is still very young, you know, his upside is still crazy, but I just feel like with the exception of rebounding, I've really not seen Mitch improve in almost any area of his game since he was a rookie. Um, he still is, is an athletic phenom and he um, impacts the game because he's an athletic phenom. And, and um, you know, I, I just, again, besides rebounding, his free throw numbers took a dip last year. Of course he was hurt. I just don't know how much I really feel strongly about investing in him in the future. Um, when, when Nerlens Noel, who was a backup essentially, you know, um, was the fulcrum of our defense of a top, you know, three defense for most of the season. Yeah. All right. Have you got anything to promote before we let you go? Um, not too much. Just, you know, if, if, um, if, uh, you know, Daily Knicks is the site that I write for, um, you know, I'm always trying to uh, get out, you know, anything that's current and topical about the Knicks. I'm actually writing a, uh, <laughs> I've been trying to get very much into the draft this year. Not that, not that like I'm, um, you know, hoping that the Knicks are, are getting these big draft picks because I want them to win games and do well. But just with an eye to the future, I have a piece coming out hopefully within a week or two yep. about three names to kind of look out for. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely be, you know, putting that out there sometime soon. Yeah, I tried focusing on the draft one year and it was just too much effort. So I've given up it's on a it. lot. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot. Especially for someone who's on the other side of the world. It's just too, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, other than that, we appreciate you coming on, Jeff. And uh, best of luck for the season. You too, Ben. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun, man. You gotta be aware of the inbounder here if you're Philly. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? All right, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season previews to talk all things Toronto Raptors from Clutch Points. It's Josh Howe. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I appreciate you getting up early for us on the other side of the world. 
Oh yeah, no problem. It's uh, it's always good to be woken up to talk about basketball and not literally anything else. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's worse reasons to drag yourself out of bed early in the morning, um, especially you know talking yeah. about the, the team of the Commonwealth uh, and the Raptors. I guess exactly. on a on a general level, how are you feeling heading into the season? I'm feeling good. I mean, so the main thing about this Raptors team is the vibes are immaculate. Uh, it's the best part of this team. Um, everything about this team feels great. You know, there are, there are wide ranging expectations among the fan base, but uh, I don't think realistically um, there's too much there uh, in my, in my opinion, in, in terms of just like what I think is, is set out to be accomplished by the time that they reach the playoffs. Um, and so just looking at the way the team is constructed, looking at the young guys who have a lot of growth to come uh, and looking at the core guys who will, uh, are going to be showing off further growth. Um, a lot of which we saw in the preseason, that stuff is, uh, is kind of what I'm most excited about heading into the season. It's just a season finally with a bit of lack of expectations and a lot of growth ahead. Yeah. I was going to bring that up actually. And I think everyone I've spoken to, uh, who's a fan of a younger team with maybe lower expectations. It's a pretty universal feeling of just, you know, excitement, bit of relief, especially when they've been so intense for so long. Like I guess the Raptors would have been for the last five years, having all those expectations with the core that they had with Lowry and DeRozan, Ibaka, all those guys. It's kind of nice almost to not, not take a season off, but it's just, it's relaxing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Much more relaxing. And you kind of know, what the team is going to be to some degree in terms of winning and all that with a uh, with guy like Kyle Lowry on the roster. But, you know, now that he's gone, just still bizarre to think about um, yeah. the Raptors, you know, it kind of becomes like, what are they? And like, you know, kind of what they are piece by piece. Um, but as an actual cohesive unit, uh, we still don't really know yet. So that's why all the expectations are all over the place, why people's projections are all over the place. And uh that's why they're going to be super fun to figure out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess on that, you know, expectations all over the place. Is there any, I guess, one prevailing narrative that you think is surrounding the team heading into the season? Um, it's weird because, like, I feel like there's no kind of specific, like, one player narrative or anything like that. It tends to be more like the... Uh, Masai and Bobby Webster went ahead and built a team full of six, nine guys with a bunch of length who can play positionless, um, who can all switch, uh, you know, who can play this hyper aggressive defensive uh, system in, at least in theory. And that's sort of the idea in terms of like, let's just see what that group can do. It's not the most novel ideal. It's not like this has never happened before. It's not like no team has ever thought like, wow, what if we got a bunch of really big guys on a basketball <laughs> court um, and saw what would happen. But um, it's kind of the first time the Raptors have ever done this. And uh, they're just firing on a lot of these kind of potential prospects and, 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 uh, and players like, you know, obviously Scotty Barnes, bit of a surprise pick for some at number four and then um, guys like uh, Delano Banton as well same type of thing uh, big guy big wingspan um, and and just when you get all those guys 
really firing in the defensive system that they want to play, uh, it looks really, really good. So, yeah, it's just basically a team full of six, eight guys. What can you do with that? That's kind of the narrative, I think, going in. Yeah, and I guess I hadn't really thought about it before, but now that you bring it up, it is almost a change from the traditional Toronto team of the last five years when you look at their main guys, and especially the starting first three and Lowry, who's you know a generous probably six foot one or whatever he's listed at, mm-hmm. uh, Fred Van Vliet, who's still there, but then also Norman Powell starting at the three, who's undersized for a modern NBA three. Then you replace those guys, you know, OG's still going to start, Pascal's still there, but then you bring in Scotty Barnes, who's such a the opposite type of player to what they had in the past. And it is almost a shifting narrative. I'll tell you what happens when a team tries to get in a bunch of big guys. As a Detroit fan, they tried it with Josh Smith, Greg Munner, and Andre Drummond. And let me tell you, it sucks. And these guys are obviously more skilled than them, but that sucked. Um, And I hope we never do that again, because that was awful. Um, But yeah, I guess following on from that, and it's been a big off season for a big, I guess, last 12 months really for the Raptors in terms of uh, transactions, a lot of turnover, I guess, shifting gears, but is there one specific addition or loss? I have you on answer, but you think will have the largest impact on the team. Yeah. So for me, it's Kyle Lowry. I mean, it's the obvious one, yeah. right? It's, it's, uh, you know, he's been with the team um, my entire adult life, got traded to the Toronto Raptors and, 2012 and uh, has been here since until this season. And that's a big change going through that. I mean, he's one of the culture builders, one of the guys that helped turn the uh, franchise around. Um, Obviously one of the guys that helped win a championship. Uh, He is the greatest Raptor of all time. And so not having him on the roster anymore is strange. Um, But, you know, the losses, uh, it's mitigated at least in terms of leadership and sort of that physical role of a small lead guard by Fred Van Vliet. Um, and, and that's great to have uh, Fred's really willingly stepped into that role and really taken the reins there. But Lowry did do a lot of things uh, on the floor in particular that are just impossible for anyone who's on this current roster to replicate. So, you know, he's got uh, such just high level playmaking. He's just such an extremely intelligent basketball player. Um, you know, he's a pick and roll maestro. He's a savant in the open floor. Um, he sees plays developing way before they do. Everybody knows he takes charges. Um, he's got this level of guile and stubbornness and intelligence that few other players have. Uh, and, you know, so it's just that those are things that the Raptors aren't going to be able to directly replicate on every any given night. Um, but I do think, actually, funnily enough, that in at least one way, uh, you know, it's going to be some positives too, because there'll be some space for other guys to take on some higher usage. Um, I know specifically for Siakam, and he talked about this, and Fred also talked about this near the beginning of the season, that it may be a bit of a positive impact for uh, Siakam specifically, because uh, he noted about how things were a bit weird last season, just in terms of a hierarchy, not that here Lowry had anything going on between them, but you know, he got paid a max contract and is kind of trying to figure out that role as sort of a more max guy in terms of the actual play on the floor. Um, and yet the team was still really Lowry's team. And of course, last season was also bizarre uh, as yep. the Tampa Raptors. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that's going to actually help Siakam in some way, um, just having that more clearly defined uh, role in the team. And uh, there are no sort of, 
you know, um, unspoken obstacles that are there. It really is Siakam's team for real now. He is the best player when fully healthy on the team. So, yeah, yeah so Larry's loss is big, but it's going to open up a lot of stuff and, and it's going to have the Raptors not be able to do a lot of the same things that they could before. It, it's the, the question that gets asked every time a superstar gets traded and even in the Simon trade. Do you think the Raptors got fair value for Larry? Um, I mean, provided context, uh, yeah, but, uh, without context, no, I don't. I mean, I, I, I think like, I mean, it's one of these things, right? Like Kyle, uh, he's always going to mean more to the Raptors than he means to any other franchise. And so you have to factor that kind of stuff in. That's why, you know, a lot of Philadelphia fans were kind of like, oh, I mean, they, you know, they couldn't take the deal, the deadline, whatever. Like they're never going to get a deal better than that. And like, ultimately that's basically true, right? The deal, the deadline um, in a vacuum probably would have been better than what they got from Miami in the end. Yeah. But, um, but at that time, uh, you know, it didn't meet the standards to what Mass I thought Lowry was worth, uh, especially for keeping Kyle around for the rest of the season and kind of into the off season, kind of figure things out there. And he's just so much more valuable to the Raptors franchise than he is to the Philadelphia franchise. So I, I still completely understand why they stood pat there. And when it came time for uh, the move and Lowry wanting to move, they were always going to accommodate a move for him. Um, he's built that kind of relationship with the front office. And so, yep. you know, uh, I think they got the best of what they could in the given moment and he got to go where he wanted to. And, you know, I think it ends up working out that way. Yeah. And like all these so- sorts of moves, they kind of flow on for future. I guess you, you look at how the Raptors traded Larry, that's always going to be in the back of minds of free agents. It's just a, it's a relationship business. So I guess you can't really begrudge the Raptors for doing right like that. Um, what does a best case scenario season then this year look like for Toronto? So um, there's a lot of stuff I think that has to go right. Uh, and I think it looks like, so I was saying, uh, I was actually, I was doing a podcast last night as well, which I got to ask the similar question just about like wins and stuff. And um, I think for me, uh, the high end for the Raptors, if everything does go right, it's probably around the seventh seed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that means, and that's the optimistic take. So that means OG Ananobi breaks out as a true Kawhi disciple, uh, particularly on the offensive end, what he's showing in preseason that comes through, um, you know, Siakam returns from his torn labrum and quickly returns to all-star status, uh, meshes with the other players, looks like himself on both ends. Van Vliet is able to handle the increased playmaking role. He's going to take on um, the increased usage um, able to stay on the floor despite that wear and tear. Um, you know, Toronto's depth comes into play. The the pieces that they have, Flynn and Trent and Watanabe and Banton, those guys uh, come in and actually, you know, and have uh, productive minutes. And, you know, Flynn is kind of able to take the reins there, the second unit, and, and do his best to um, turn them into uh, a punch every single night where needed. Um and then the team's kind of got to achieve, you know, total uh, cohesiveness defensively because the way they want to play is hyper-aggressive. Uh, all the guys have to be on a string to make that defense work. And that's going to be tough. And it's going to be mixed results. Um, and they're going to have to switch around their defense a bit. It's not going to just be the flying around swarming 
man-on-man uh, -man defense all the time. They're going to have to play a fair bit of zone, and I think they will, and uh, I think that'll work out better for them. But they're going to have to have the, you know, figure those things out fairly quickly. The Raptors play more defensive schemes than, than some others. I mean, I think it's most notable with Trent just because he was kind of touted as a very good defensive player coming over from Portland. And Portland doesn't play, uh, you know, they play a different defensive style than the Raptors. And he just looked better in that scheme than he has coming over for uh, Toronto's scheme. So um, it'll be interesting to see. He's kind of a barometer for me on, on how well this Raptors uh, team is going to be able to pull this off as a entire uh, you know unit as a whole team um, with any given lineup out there uh, and sort of more the average defenders than the really really good ones um, yeah and, and the last thing is just like getting guys in the right positions to succeed offensively because you know there, there was like a stat that came out yesterday talking about the Raptors have just like completely fallen off they're like bottom of the league at least in the preseason compared to last season in pick and roll frequency and um that's just because like partly because they didn't uh they just didn't play it a lot they were missing siakam um who's probably the best player to have in those uh, particular plays but also they have a bunch of guys who succeed in different avenues um you know so for example barnes has shown even in the preseason that having him as a mid-post playmaker is going to be a big thing basically having him as a has the Gasol uh like in the uh 2019 2020 seasons um that's kind of where he's at his best when he's creating uh and so you know you're not going to have pick and roll all the time constantly the same way you did when Kyle Lowry was on the floor and creating um because he was so good at it so you got to play to your personnel so Raptors do all those things and they all mesh and, and work well then I think uh, they could punch up as high as the seventh seed. Simple. Everything works out well, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, I guess on the flip side, then what's the worst case scenario? Yeah, so just the opposite. <laughs> like, just, <laughs> like, just, like, like Siakam comes back. He doesn't look very good. He takes some time to, you know, get back to whatever his, his status is, uh, his form was before, um, you know, OG Ananobi's uh, growth is not necessarily fluky, but I think, you know, it takes longer to actually sort of come into its own, uh, you know, Barnes hits a rookie wall early on. Um, you know, he has some trouble figuring out NBA defenses uh, because of his limitations with shooting and things like that. Um, you know, Malachi, the lack of consistency affects him and uh, he struggles a bit to kind of find his spot um, guiding the second unit. Fred has trouble uh, handling that load offensively, um, just the increased usage and stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I, mean, I think that's really that's really it. it's just the opposite of everything else. And then <laughs> I, I think like, which which is very possible. It's just, like it's a it's really a seesaw type thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it could go completely other way. And what the reality is, it's probably going to be some of those things go very well, and some of them don't go very well. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, and, and so and so I think in that case scenario, you probably have the Raptors ending up something like the twelfth seed, one was so, yeah, about five spots lower than their best yeah. case scenario, probably around there. So, and obviously, you know, the Raptors were twelfth seed last year. Um, you know, injuries and all that sort of other stuff um, probably ruined them a little bit in that season. But would missing the the play in even two years in a row would that be any sort of, I guess, red flag? 
don't know about a red flag. Um, it's one of those things like the Raptors are clearly trying to, they want to be younger and continue to grow uh, and get better that way and, and create stars for the future and things like that and, and keep themselves um, in position to be, you know, one of the most highly regarded franchises in the league for player development. But at the same time, they also want to remain competitive. And yeah. they have guys who are in their prime or approaching their prime who want to be competitive. Fred and Siakam in particular. Uh, OG's a bit younger than those guys. Um, and so it's a, it's a balance you've got to keep. It's something that the Spurs did for so, so, so long and, and how they you know maintained just that insane playoff record. Yeah. Um, and... You know, the idea is even when you're not a contender, you kind of stay in that pocket of being very, very good while continuing to create growth on your roster. And then uh, eventually the moment comes along where you're able to make a trade where you draft someone or whatever that helps push you to that next level. And uh, that's that's kind of where the Raptors are, are headed uh, in that direction. And uh, they're sort of in their early stages of it a bit um, because they're just coming off a championship, you know, two seasons ago. And so and that, you know, rebuild, if you want to call it that, that sort of retooling, I suppose, is much, much better word, is uh, a yeah. lot, was escalated just by the fact that, you know, Kawhi decided to leave immediately. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I think that's kind of the outlook for the Raptors at the moment uh, and in sort of the short and a bit of the long term. Yeah, it's like one of those classic rebuild on the fly, soft rebuild, restoration, rebuild without saying we're rebuilding so the fans don't, you know, turn on us, Um, you know, (laughs) so you don't outwardly. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Yeah, teams go through that all the time. And I guess when you have been as successful as Toronto with, because it's not, (coughs) excuse me, it's not a traditionally young rebuilding roster. You've got, you know, NBA champions on this roster Mm -hmm. that are, like you said, approaching their prime and paid to, play to win so it's it's a really odd situation i think as a neutral observer to see how they deal with that as this soft rebuild when it's it's kind of a yucky term but i think everyone can see it's it's probably like a transition year and then we'll see where they go next year Uh, is there a, a younger guy or an underrated guy that maybe we're not talking about that you're specifically excited to maybe break out this year um, this year in particular, again, I went with the obvious choice and I went with Scotty Barnes yeah. <laughs> um, just because he's been so much fun in the preseason. And it's interesting, you know, like I knew coming into this preseason that um, I knew his general sort of profile. I'm not a big college basketball guy, so I wasn't watching Scotty Barnes throughout his college season. Neither um, was I, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I knew generally that, you know, not regarded as a great shooter, um, a great defensive player, a lot of very good instincts there, and a good playmaker. Those were like the three main things that I knew coming in. But in the preseason, you know, and, and he's shown that, uh, yeah, right, not a super great shooter yet. Um, confident, though, and he does have a couple ki- types of shots that he can hit mm-hmm. fairly consistently, whether on the move or in a standstill, which are um, good to see. Yep. And then defensively, yeah, pretty much as advertised, he's going to be really, really good there. Uh, a guy that can be on future all defensive teams. Um, very, very good instincts. Tries hard constantly. Um, 
is always up in guys grill, like, you know, 50 feet from the basket, he's guarding you. Um, he's massive, you know, he's blowing up pick and rolls. He's scram switching to get guys out of trouble. He's doing all these really, really impressive things for a rookie. Yeah. And he's got the NBA body to do it. But the playmaking is the thing that really stood out for me um, because I, I, you know, I knew he was good at it, but he's really good at it. And he's got very, very good instincts. Um, you know, it was like, I don't even know, like, was it the first game he played in preseason? It might've been where right? he was already throwing no look passes in the chaos of semi-transition. And I was like, yeah. this guy's got it. Like he just, he knew it, you know, he saw it way before and he made a point to make it a, a no look pass. And <laughs> was just so happy with himself that that, that was what happened. Yeah. And it was, and it's awesome. Um, you know, he sees a lot of stuff developing, developing before it does. And he's very, very good with the de- defense on the move. He finds every open lane, every open pocket and uh, hits guys that way for, for easy buckets. And it's, it's been great because, you know, all of a sudden you realize, Hey, you know, this guy who everyone talked about being super limited offensively, maybe he does have a very particular role in the half court offense of being the guy who works in the mid post and finds cutters and uh, you know, just any movement around him is able to find the open guy and at least get a defense moving, if not finding a guy directly for a basket. So yeah, that is a development I did not see coming. And that's what has me most excited for his season this year. Yeah. To, to me anyway, Scotty Barnes outside of Cade on a personal mm-hmm. level, but Scotty Barnes is maybe the most intriguing rookie to me this year because Obviously, I don't. I think everyone had admitted to having like a top four entrenched of Cade, Green, Suggs, Mobley, and whatever order. Mm-hmm. But then Barnes goes four, and then we hear all this chatter. And to me, I think his best involvement, at least straight away, is probably just keeping him involved on the ball so he doesn't turn into a spot-up shooter that the defense doesn't respect because of his percentages in college last year and then maybe what he's shown in preseason as well. But I guess the main thing I thought with Barnes was, well, do Toronto see, like they're drafting him at number four. Do they see him as a point guard long-term? And obviously Van Vliet's uh, 27, 28. I'm not sure what he is exactly, but he's, you know, prime, rounding out his prime. And Scotty Barnes, like you said, has already shown flashes of what he can be in this NBA body and he's just getting started. Do you think long-term he is that point forward, you know, that, as much as his name is probably mud in NBA circles right now, that Ben Simmons type. Um, I mean, I can definitely see him doing some of those things. He's got a long way to go to actually be sort of oh yeah for sure yeah a high like a high usage guy in those scenarios. But like, I mean, the cool thing is right. Like Nurse has talked about um, allowing guys to just grab rebounds and go because they have a lot of very versatile players, uh, including all their bigs and Scotty Barnes is one of those guys where he can grab a board at one end after a very, very good defensive possession and he can just motor down to the other end of transition. And because of his vision, you know, have a perfect kick to the corner, kick to the wing um, for a very, very good spot up shooter, like Fred Van Vliet, for example, Yeah. Um, who will just be splashing threes. And in that way, you know, sort of doing the pseudo point guard thing in transition. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of a good way to start. And uh, give him reps that way. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the more like difficult stuff and complex things in the half court, um, I think that's a little, a bit of a ways off. Yeah. But I think that's kind of though where you'll, you'll see him start is sort of in the transition. Cause that's exactly what Siakam did. So. Yeah. 
is there a player on the Raptors this year that you think uh, could maybe win one of those individual awards or accolades? Yeah, for sure. I, oh, this has got to be OG's year in my mind. He's got to be first team all defense. Um, I, I just think if he stays healthy, uh, he's been this player for a while. And I'm wondering if actually the, his uh, increased offensive usage um, and if that goes well, um, if people just take more notice of him in general and then start to realize just how good he is defensively because he is, he is one of a few guys in the league that is – very there's no no one who's actually like truly a one to five defender yeah he's about as close as you get right like yep it it comes to like it comes down to like when he guards genuine big guys one-on-one the bruisers in the post it's probably not going to go well for him most Mm -hmm. of the time there even though he's very strong otherwise though uh he can guard pretty much every every kind of player every position um and he can give you stints in in at the five if you really need it um most famously against boys this last season it feels like i don't even know how many seasons whatever he did it against he did it against Jokic uh not too long ago and, and had some success there partly because of Jokic's game but yep. um you know he, he he's just so versatile he knows what he's doing whether off the ball or on it he's so strong um you know just sees pl- uh, plays before they happen he's sniffing things out he's detonating pick and rolls uh just you know, always on the back line defense, great help defender, knows exactly what the defensive game plan is, um, making, getting steals at the perimeter. He is just an immaculate defender uh, in every single way. And if he has another season like he has in the past, then, um, you know, I think he deserves a recognition and uh, should be on that list of first team all defense. What odds would you give, well, I guess percentage-wise, would you give uh, a, perhaps the Scotty Barnes rookie of the year charge? Um, hmm. I think pretty low, just because, not because he won't be very, very good. and Numbers. Uh, yeah, I think, because I just think so much of the time it comes down to the raw numbers with that stuff, right? Yep. Like, the people just want to know how many points those guys are scoring, and yep. Barnes is not going to be that guy. No. Nah. Um, you know, because it's like OG in his rookie year, probably will be similar to what Barnes is like this year. Like Barnes has got a higher level of playmaking and OG is a good playmaker, but Barnes has a higher vision level of vision than OG did at that time. And, um, but the defensive stuff is, is similar. Um, but yeah, he's just not, you know, and he's not as good of a shooter as OG was at that point and all that stuff. So yeah, um, it's just, the numbers just won't be there the same. You know, if he, he probably will average around, maybe around 10 points, yeah. something like that. And um, if he's getting the, you know, a larger role, consistent role, which I think he will. And, uh, and I just think guys like Cade and Jalen green, um, you know, guys that are, they, their teams need them to be scorers and, and yeah. stuff like that. They're going to, they're going to be filling it up. And so I think probably he's not going to really be in the race. Yeah. Like rookie of the year. And then also six men and most improved. Um, they, they just seem like such counting stat awards. And I've said, Mm-hmm. I said to other people for, uh, for teams with high rated rookies, like I, I personally would be very surprised barring health if it wasn't one of Cade or Jalen Green, just because mm-hmm. like, it's so hard to keep up for a full season for all the teams as a voter. So you're just going to look at the raw numbers for like the main picture of what you're voting for. And then I don't think personally Barnes has any like real narratives going his way that could maybe sway his way in a tie. So yeah, like I'd be almost floored if it wasn't, 
uh, one of Green or Cade. I mean, Barnes probably will make a, a rookie team, but yeah, as a, as a rookie of the year, I, I don't see it personally. Yeah. Um, just finally, a couple of quick ones. I ask everyone about their team, their their wins line, and the Raptors one. I've had a look at it, and I just I don't know which way to go on it. But the Raptors line is set at thirty seven and a half. Are you over or under? Um, you know, I'm going to be optimistic and take the over. Uh, I think so. You know, everyone's talking about whether or not to be a play playoff team. At the very least, I think they'll be a play in team. Yeah. Um, but I think they're probably going to be around the eight seed. Yeah, and yeah. again, so, so I'm, I'm assuming then that, you know, based on what we talked about earlier, that more things go right than go wrong. And, you know, we already recently had the news that uh, Siakam sounds like we'll actually be returning a bit earlier than we thought okay. initially yep. by a couple weeks, maybe. Um, and so that's obviously a good sign to start um, because I think he, you know, this roster, like even the people are already talking about, like, oh, when OG's showing some stuff and what if Siakam coming back is whatever. It's like those two guys, have, they played together in a championship team. Yeah, their roles were slightly different, but like these guys mesh very, very well. They're set up to be, uh, partners very very well i would not, not worry about the usage yep. and stuff and with the lack of kyle uh there's going to be a lot of space to go around for guys to eat um yeah so well, yeah sorry go ahead no, i was gonna say with the raptors like to me it's it's a it's an eclectic mix of you've got like we've talked about at length earlier you've got those prime veterans who have won titles mixed with a whole bunch of young guys and it's just like I know the line is meant to make you think and like, that's the whole point of it. But with mm-hmm. most, like a lot of them, I would look at it and go, Oh, that's like, I'd, I might not be right, but I'd feel confident taking it over. Oh, that's way too hard. I'm taking the other, but the Raptors, I genuinely have no idea. It's one of the few that I'm looking at and I'm just going, well, they've, they've added a lot of guys. Um, mm-hmm. And relatively speaking, the rest of the league, I just don't know. I, I can't pick it. Yeah. And it's tough, right? Cause like, the East has gotten a little better. Um, and so there's, you got to think about that too. Cause I think last season, like 35 wins last season, you'd be the eighth seed. So 34 was the Wizards at eighth last year, but obviously a shortened season, but pace wise, right. 36. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So like, so you're kind of aiming around that area. Yeah. Um, with the Raptors. So I, I don't think it's like create, like that's around where the odds think they'll be anyway. So I don't think it's too crazy to say that they'll probably be a playoff team. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of where I project them at this point. Obviously, yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff to figure out. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, I think that's kind of where they'll be. Yeah, like I think with the Raptors, and I don't want to dwell too much on the lines and all that, but I think with the Raptors, with a guy like Siakam, he's going to drag you to a fair chunk of wins. And I, when mm-hmm. I did the the Thunder one of these, and obviously the Thunder's line is way lower. But it was kind of the same idea with Shea just dragging you to wins um, and yeah. different scenarios. But I think, yes, Yarkham's that kind of dude that will mm-hmm. just, you know, get you by himself like 10 cheap wins or something like that. You know, just a boost in that, like what maybe what the expected total would be. So, yeah, I think if it is going to be over, it's going to be like a lot on Siakam and Van Vliet to just drag them. Because I think they're a lot better quality of player than what a lot of those other teams in that middle of the conference would have. Yeah, yeah. In a vacuum, that trio of Fred VanVleet, OG, and Siakam is really, really good. Like, yep. yeah, like none of those guys are top ten players. Yeah, right. But no, like, yeah. no one's no one's expecting them to be like also a title contender, right? Like, um, these guys are all very, very good. Still growing, still learning, and like Siakam at his best is 
an all-star caliber player and all NBA caliber player yeah. at his very, very best, probably, you know, whatever, but not first team, but an NBA all caliber player. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, when you consider both ends and so, yeah, I mean, obviously adding a guy like that, he's going to bring a fair number of wins to the team. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and finally, um, do you have a, let's say a bold prediction for the Raptors for this season? Um, I'm usually super lukewarm and very, very boring. So, <laughs> okay, uh, well, what have you got? So this is hard for me, but this is the best I've got. So I, I, I'll have two and maybe sort of quick ones, and you can just sort of decide, I guess, which is cr- like more bold out there. Yep. Um. So, so the first one is uh, I don't think Goran Dragic will be on the Raptors roster for the entire season. Um. It's quite confident that before the deadline or at the deadline, he will be traded, and yep. I do think Dallas is still the most likely destination. Um. And so I, I think I think that happens for sure. Uh, and then the other one is, um, I think I don't think Scotty Barnes wins Rookie of the Year, but I do think he makes the All Rookie First Team. Okay. And the last Raptor to do that was Bargnani, which is crazy to think about, in two thousand six, two thousand seven. <laughs> so it has been a long time. <laughs> Yeah, geez, I was still in oh. primary school back then. Wow. Yeah, that's 15, <laughs> yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, out, out of those wow. two predictions, I, I, I think the, I'll be honest, neither of them are particularly red hot, but I, I think. Um, <laughs> that's on I, I, th- I think, yeah, like we've spoken earlier, I think Barnes making a first team is probably slightly more red hot if we consider the whole soft rebuild concept and Dragic being kind of an odd man out with his money, mm-hmm. um, even if he's bought out if the team isn't going so well um, and there's no real point paying him. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, both of them are very, very plausible, but mm-hmm. I think with the, the strong rookie class this year with Cade, Green, Suggs, Mobley, uh, Giddy looks good from his preseason. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you go down the list. Um, I think I still think Barnes is probably a, fav- uh, a favorite as much as you can be a favorite for a team, but mm-hmm. I, I do like the pick of Dragic being traded. Yeah, and it makes sense. Yeah. Have you got anything to promote before we let you go? Uh, not too much yet. So I'm, uh, like I mentioned up top, I'm going to be with Clutch Points this season uh, covering the Raptors uh, on the beat and stuff. So uh, you'll be able to find all my Raptors stuff there for the most part. And uh, that's going to start very, very soon with the written content coming out. So I'm excited about that. And um, believe I'm going to be starting a podcast soon there as well. Uh, so just keep an eye out for that stuff. But uh, nothing too, too solid other than that to, <laughs> to promote at the moment, uh, other than just following me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Havolution, so you can find me there and just, uh, you know, tweet me about whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, mate. Well, we do appreciate you coming on really early in the morning for you. So appreciate that. And best of luck with the Raptors this season. I appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it was fun. So thank you. All right, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season preview to chat all things Philadelphia 76 is a bit of a local flavor here from the pick and roll, our very own Ben Malice. How are you? I'm good, good. How are you? Good, mate. Thanks for joining us over there in Perth. Um, how are you feeling about the season? Uh, excited and surprised. Surprised because it feels like the last 18 months, there's been about three seasons all <laughs> once. So it feels 
strange and weird and wonderful that the season's starting next week. And I think the biggest thing is just no more Curry Evan talk, no more Ben Simmons talk, even though we're going to get through it today. Totally cool with that. But just having some games to digest is going to be amazing next week and we can leave the uh, yeah. vaccine talk and the uh, trade demand talk to the side for a few weeks. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny you brought up that 18 months thing. When I did the Miami one of these, and the guy threw out the stat and it was just crazy to me because they were in the finals two seasons ago, but it only ticked over a calendar year like last week. So, or and a couple of weeks ago. Time merges into one, doesn't it? In yeah, time is a month of all this, uh, what has been a crazy couple of years. Time is a flat circle, yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll start with the Albatross. And, you know, obviously as Australians, we're probably a bit more across Ben Simmons than maybe casual fans, but what's your take on the whole situation on a broader level? It's a, it is a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yes. I think someone asked me this yesterday, just a uh, random, a, a scout from the NBA messaged me and just uh, wanted to get my thoughts on it. And I was messaging him back yesterday. And the biggest thought that came to mind when probably thinking about this was just how much Simmons and whether that's his agent or his parents or him or whoever it is, but someone on team Simmons they've just thoroughly misplayed their hand here and they tried to force um, through a trade and a trade demand that is reserved for the top echelon of players in the sport. We've seen James Harden do this. We've seen Anthony Davis do it and actually get away with it. But with all due respect to Ben, he isn't on their level. And he um, took on a city in Philadelphia, which I know very well, that doesn't back down. Um, The people there (laughs) are... Crazy at the best of times, but they're very good when you're showing them love, but he's completely cut them off. And he's also tried to attack um, Daryl Morey and Sixers ownership that's full of trust, sorry, hedge fund managers and people that have new money that (laughs) don't back down either. So again, it leads us to a position now where I think it's pretty much expected that Ben's going to be playing for the Sixers next week when the season tips and he'll be doing that for a while, but He's just misplayed his hand. He's either been given some horrible advice or he has made some horrible decisions or maybe even both because for everything that's happened the past two months, nothing's happened except for he's pissed off an entire city. He's cost himself some money and he's put his reputation through the toilet a little bit. So, yes, it's been a very, um, yeah, it's quite sad actually that it's come to this and nothing has changed and he'll be playing for the Sixers next week. Yeah, it- just given all Ben's a bad name, eh? Um, just I know. I'd like to think we we need to move to Philly and uh, we'll uh, Australian <laughs> Ben Biden Philadelphia. We'll, we'll take it on, mate. Um, I, I saw a great dis- uh, description of the situation when he rocked up, basically to Wells Fargo uh, or the practice facility yesterday, and someone just described it as it's like an Uber driver with hey, your food's outside. I'm here because like no one knew that he was coming, and he just rocks up to the building and he's like, oh, Ben's here. Like what? It's just, it's it, it's so odd, but it's also so Philadelphia to me. I, I know, man. It's funny. Like I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time at Wells Fargo and go to games. And the entrance, first of all, that place is a dump. It's one of the worst arenas in basketball. <laughs> but the entrance to it for the players is down a ramp. You can't see what I'm doing with my hands here, but it's down a ramp, and there's just board security guards standing outside that don't want to buy anything. And I'm just imagining Ben walking up to the gate and there was a buzzer you always had to press to get in. I'm just imagining Ben uh, pressing a little buzzer, sending a little question mark to Elton Brand saying, let me in. It's just stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess then moving on, and it'll probably come up here as well, but you know, all about narratives surrounding the sixes. Is Ben Simmons the most prevailing narrative or is there something else you think that's you know equally important that's being discussed a lot? 
Yeah, well, I think the narrative around Ben is going to taint this team all year. Um, I think for me, the more seductive narrative is whether this team can rebound from what was, let's be honest, a massive choke job yep. against the Hawks in the playoffs last season and whether Embiid can stay fit and win an MVP. So I think on the court, that is what this season should have been about in Philly. But with what's happened with Simmons and the mess that this has turned into, I think it's very um, easy and very obvious to state that that's going to become the storyline, that the NBA media circus is going to kick into overdrive and with every good game or bad game from Ben, it's not really going to matter because the headlines are going to come. So I think until he gets traded or until they win a championship, and I think we all know they're not going to win a championship, (laughs) the biggest story is going to be when and if and how he gets traded. So I do think that his shenanigans is going to take the team and Again, knowing the American NBA media like we both do, I think it's going to get pretty uncomfortable and annoying for them all very soon. Yeah, once you get into that echo chamber, it doesn't stop. And just the final thing on Simmons, because I don't want to turn this into a, the Ben Simmons review, but um, recorded one of these a while ago now with uh, ESPN's very own fake Steve Smith. Uh, we're both just talking about you know the boomers and all this sort of stuff. And I think we both agree the narrative around Simmons specifically has kind of escalated to the point beyond reasonable control where it would have been a fair reflection at the start. But then I think people are saying now they're using what's gone on to discredit him as a player. And I think people have to pump the brakes a little bit. Like he's obviously had a disappointing playoffs and he's obviously probably not that guy, at least in Philly. And then ignoring all the issues he's had with the boomers. Um, But I think, yeah, even if he has a couple of solid games, I think, people are pretty set in their, their valuations of him now. And it's going to take a lot for him to turn that ship around. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, right? And I think it's actually quite um, symbolic of what his career has been. He's been in the NBA system for five years now. And he's been so polarizing globally on the NBA scale. And I know, given we're both from Australia and we I certainly sometimes get caught up in the hype machine of him being an Australian NBA sure. also all but there's just no rational talk with Ben. It's either all everything he does well or it's the things he does bad. And he's become one of those players, almost like the new age Russell Westbrook, where you don't find many people or many discussions which are talking about the nuance of the no. 90% of things he does well, accepting that there's the 10% of things that he's very poor at. So yeah. it's a very good point that he's become very polarised. And again, I'll use the word sad. I'm now talking about a millennial millionaire sporting athlete, so it's <laughs> not scared on, scared on a global context. But within a basketball sporting context, it is a little bit sad that this is where it's come to because, again, it's not a point now where we can have rational discussions about Ben. And like it or unlike it, I think what he's learning at the moment and he's going to experience is that Ben puts up a very strong facade to the media, especially. And he's very prickly to deal with. He doesn't give interviews. He doesn't let people in. And the only time he does let the world in, it's very agenda-driven and it's very narrative-driven. And his agenda is very transparent. And it's definitely something I noticed in my year in Philly is that anything that comes out of his camp is so agenda-driven and he doesn't actually win the goodwill of the media and the fans. And not that he necessarily has to, but you can't keep everyone at arm's length and then also pull the stuff that he's tried to pull the past week coming off what was a momentous playoff, again, choke, <laughs> and expect that things are going to be as they were. So 
you're very right that there is not much nuanced discussion around Ben yeah. and until he gets a new team and gets a chance to, I suppose, spread his wings away from Philly and Embiid, I don't see that changing. Yeah. All right. That's enough Simmons chat. I think we've done enough to, you know, last me at least a while. Philadelphia, I guess as a team, haven't really had much turnover, you know, in the last year or so, but is there any transaction gain or loss that you think will have the largest impact? I think not really. They're, as you say, they're for the first time in probably since Embiid and Simmons got on the team, the actual playing roster of his nuts and bolts, it's the same team. We've got the same group of core guys that made that playoff run last year and made the regular season run. They're back in a Sixers uniform. And again, not to use the word sad again, but I will. The, a sad and annoying thing for Sixers fans is that they had one year last year with a full team and Doc Rivers and a new coach and a new message and a new voice and all of that. And they had a very good regular season. And again, NBA history tells us that when teams get together for a second and third goal at it, there's inherent growth that comes when you've got a talented team like this is. So I think the biggest, I suppose, benefit or the biggest transaction for the Sixers is the fact that they didn't actually have this massive roster upheaval. They didn't sack a coach. They didn't hire a new coach. The Simmons stuff aside, it's a very cohesive team for the first time since, again, Embiid was drafted almost a decade ago. So they bought in Andre Drummond. He's not going to do anything. They've bought in Niang from the Jazz. He might get some minutes, not going to make a massive impact. So we're not going to see, I think, the Sixers' new guys make a massive impact. The growth has to come from the likes of Tyrese Maxey getting some more comfort, Thibault taking a step forward. And again, it all comes back to Embiid. If Embiid's fit and plays 70 games, they're going to be a top four team. But if Embiid is limping around, then this team could sink into the playoff mix, which would be a massive fall from last year. Yeah, and as a Detroit fan, once he left us, I've often said that every team has to go through the Andre Drummond experience at least once just to... Because <laughs> yeah, the numbers are there and then you, you'll probably get uh, try and get convinced by the team with the videos of him shooting threes in the offseason. I'm just saying don't buy into it because it if, if that's happening, then something's gone horribly wrong. I just love that Philly fans are now trying to convince themselves. Um, it's great to, for me on a personal level. Um, I'm glad oh, that I, I'm glad you're going through it now. I think back to my experience in Philly and it was one of the early season games where Embiid was just absolutely roasting this guy. It was post-up moves. It was taking him off the dribble. It was blocking his shots to a point where Drummond just looked like a shell of himself. So I think there's some very... I don't know what the right word is. It's probably ironic irony that he's actually Embiid's backup now and playing in Philly. And at least he doesn't have to get dominated by Embiid. Well, he has to pop it every day at practice, but not for the world to see. So there's a positive for the Andre Drummond fans and Andre Drummond himself that he's not <laughs> going to be screwed by Embiid in NBA games anymore. No, I think I know the exact game you're talking about as well, which is kind of sad, but it was just such a, <laughs> it was really cathartic almost. And that video of them handshaking when they when he got there, it was you could see on Embiid's face, like, why are you here? Go, go get my uh, washing boy and uh, you're not going to yeah. do <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> We've probably touched on it already, but what does the best case scenario look like for Philly? Well, if we're getting really magical here, I think the best case is first and foremost that Simmons comes in and is playing and wants to prove a point and plays really well. And they have their team from last year together. And that's a big assumption. But if they have their team from last year and in beat stays fit, then... I still think that Brooklyn and Milwaukee are a step ahead of the Sixers in the pecking order. 
But if Philly get 70 games from their core players, they have good cohesion and they avoid the injury bug, then they should be the third best team in the conference. Now, uh, we've just spoken for 15 minutes about the many underlying assumptions that go into that. But <laughs> if everyone's there and playing to their abilities, this team should be making the second round of the playoffs and pushing either Brooklyn and Milwaukee in the second round. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I guess, obviously, things are never sunshine lollipops and Philly seems like such a volatile team, a volatile environment. So a worst-case scenario then probably doesn't look that great either. No, well, I think the realistic scenario is that when things tip off next week, they are going to be savage in their appraisals of Ben Simmons, the fan that is. <laughs> and it's just going to... Philly, the people there, their sports teams mean so much and it just breathes this level of anxiety and nervous energy. We see it across the Eagles in the NFL, the Sixers definitely, the Phillies in the baseball. And when you're in these arenas, the fans just add pressure and nervous energy to these games. So with that set, is probably what's going to happen next week when the season tips off. There is going to be a ton of anxiety and vitriol in the arena. And if the Sixers start off slow, they lose a couple of games early or they're 3-7 and seven, or Embiid misses a few early games and they don't win, then we could look at a situation where this season just is over before it begins. So obviously, worst case is Embiid getting injured. But even if everyone's fit, I think the worst case is the offensive uh, woes that we've seen at times over the past few years really happen again and they really become a focus late in games. They get off to a slow start. And as I say, this vitriol from the fans, this nervous energy, this media attention, just cocktails to a point where they become a toxic team in a toxic toxic environment. And again, we've seen it before. It, the NBA history is littered with it and... I don't hope this happens to them, but <laughs> my gut tells me that it's going to be more like the worst case scenario than the best case scenario this year, because there's just been so much noise over the past two months. Yeah. It's really hard to keep a ship like that straight. Um, I guess we'll, I'll fit this in here because we haven't really spoken about, and it's crazy. We haven't spoken about Embiid or Tobias Harris at all, but what's your thoughts on, I guess, because they're obviously the main two pieces that we know definitely for sure will be there on some form of long-term scale. And I think a lot's been said about Tobias being the top paid player on this team, and for now anyway. Um, and I guess they're fit together. Are you worried at all that there is sort of a cap on that pairing? So I've always taken the view, again, linking back to Simmons and Beaton Harris, I think if two of them are there, the fit can work really well. So if Simmons and Harris and Embiid gets traded for a massive package, I think that team makes more sense. And the same way, if Simmons gets traded and it's Harris and Embiid anchoring things and a trade package for Simmons coming back, I think that team probably works better than what they've currently got. So I think the Harris-Embiid pairing, it, it can work and it can definitely lead the six where they've been, which is the second round of the playoffs. Now, can that pairing win a championship and can that team make the conference finals? Probably not, unless they get an upper echelon point guard, someone in to run the show. But... I can see the Harris and Embiid pairing working really well when they've got the floor space, which again, the Simmons comment again, and Matisse Stiebel again, it's hard for them to have a, a spaced floor on offense when the Sixers roster is how it is. But if we flash forward three or four months and the Simmons trade happens and we've got Embiid and Harris leading a team that's got three competent two-way shooters around them, then 
that is a 50-win team in my book. That's a team that can compete in the second round. And it's also an opportunity for Harrison and B to have a platform and a spacing on offense that they haven't had before. So I feel like there is untapped potential with the Harris and B combo. It's just a case of getting more shooting and more versatility on offense around those guys and allowing those two players to really lead an offense with players around them that emphasize what they do. Yeah. And I guess that's why, I mean, obviously James Harden makes sense for every team, but that's why the James Harden rumors were so like they made a lot of sense last year and even as we move forward, Kyle Lowry as well, obviously being from Philly and those rumors, I think, yeah, like you said, the point guard like that around two of those guys and Simmons, obviously the old man out. I think it does make a lot of sense and it would really elevate the ceiling of that team. Um, is there a guy that we're perhaps not talking about that you're excited for a breakout? So whether he breaks out or not, I'm not 100% certain myself, but I think Tyrese Maxey is the one that, again, my friends in Philly that I speak to that cover the team have been talking about. And personally, he has to take a big leap up from where I saw him last year to really start games and really make that impact. But looking at the Sixers roster, he's the one guy that they need to pop to really give them what they don't have, which is a combo guard that can attack off the dribble and shoot. So he will get a bigger opportunity this year. He's going to get opportunities to work out his game. And I think any optimist for the Sixers is building hope and expectation around him taking the next step forward. So he's certainly one. And even though Matisse Thibault has been in the system a couple of years, and obviously we as an Australian basketball family love him now for what he did a couple of months ago. (laughs) In an NBA context, he still hasn't really created his niche. Now, he's obviously a great defender and he has that. But if he can come in and make 35% of his threes at the NBA level, that is going to turn him from someone that's a defensive specialist that can play sometimes to someone that makes $20 million a year and can be in every lineup. So I actually think Matisse Thibault is probably the answer to your question because his defense is what it is. That's great. It's as good as it gets. His offensive limitations exist. He's never going to be someone that's attacking off the dribble and creating plays for others. But if he's shooting at a 35% clip and above from three, then he becomes what Mikhail Bridges was in the playoffs for Phoenix or what Trevor Ariza was a decade ago for the Lakers when they were winning championships. A two-way wing that can defend the best players in the world and knock down three. So I'm cautiously optimistic about Matisse's shooting form and I think it's going to come eventually and if it comes this year the Sixers will really for the first time again since Embiid and Simmons got drafted have a two-way wing that can defend at a high level and also contribute on offense by shooting the ball from a good clip yeah and I don't think for on fireball I don't think the playmaking will get to the level that I'm about to say but I think if you add that mid-30 shooting he can become I guess kind of what OG Ananobi is for the Raptors as well. I think that's a pretty fair comparison, given the skill set he's already shown as well, at least defensively. Yeah, 100%. And as much as we say the playmaker is not going to come, he is quite adept with dribbling and he's a very smart, high IQ player, Matisse. And I think that allows him to get into situations that other players with his athletic gifts and his talents physically wouldn't have. So again, I agree that OG comp is good, and it can just be as simple as in Toronto this year, OG is going to be, I saw, I think it was Fred Van Vliet say during the week that OG is the number one option for those guys at the end of the season. Now, that speaks volumes of the fact that the Raptors are probably not going to be making a deep playoff run. 
but it also is going to allow OG to have the opportunity to develop and make his mistakes. And Thibault's not going to have that much of a platform in Philly. But again, especially if we go down the rabbit hole of Simmons getting traded or Simmons not playing as much, Thibault is going to be starting games. He's going to have opportunities to shoot the ball more. And with his defense, he can leak out and create fast breaks and get his offense that way. So I like the comp. And I also think as much as Andre Iguodala is, again, a much better playmaker for others, Matisse has every other talent that Iguodala has besides the playmaking. So I think as his career takes shape, I think Iguodala is actually a good comp for Thibault in the sense that his defense is always going to allow him to play big games. And if he can just find one elite offensive skill, whether that's shooting or playmaking or whatever, he's going to become, as I say, someone that gets rewarded very well financially and someone that is going to be playing in conference finals and NBA finals um, down the line in his career. Yeah. And I think just lastly on five, we saw a little bit of a glimpse of his shooting ability, admittedly fever, shorter line and maybe a bit more space with the team, but you know, there's definitely something there um, just needs to be a consistent level. Is there a play? Like, obviously, sorry, let me rephrase that. The obvious answer is obviously Joel Embiid, but if there is a guy on the team that's going to win one of those individual awards, who is it? What are they winning? Mm, I think Thibault for Defensive Player of the Year is the one that comes to mind. Again, um, I think Simmons is tainted. There's no chance in hell that NBA media is voting for him to win anything this year, so we can park him to the side. Um, Tobias Harris, again, he'd be lucky to make an all-star game. Yep. So I think Thibel is the answer to that question. I think the pathway would be that Ben doesn't play games, that Thibel is starting games as the best defender on the team and is given the opportunity every night to play defense for 30 minutes against the best player on the opposition. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to argue that Thibel could be the best defender in the NBA. He's definitely in the top three or four one-possession everything on the line, state of the universe, Yeah, he would be on that list. So he's got the talents. He just hasn't had the opportunity. And again, if the Simmons thing drags out, he could get the opportunity this year and really be given space to shine and show off all the talents he has on the defensive end. I mean, yeah, you don't block a Kevin Durant jump shot, um, fadeaway jump shot in FIBA qualifiers and, you know, not immediately endear yourself to a lot of media. Um, on Joel Embiid, what, what would you rate his M- uh, MVP chances? Well, I think, again, it comes back to health, not to be flippant here, but if Embiid is healthy and plays 70 games plus, he will probably win the MVP or if not, go very close. I think last year, Jokic won the MVP in my eyes simply because he played a lot more games than Embiid and was massively more resilient. But on a per-game, per-minute basis... Embiid was the best player in basketball last year. So it just comes down to health. If Embiid can get 70 games into his legs and be there night in and night out, I would put him, yeah, as probably my MVP favourite. Personally, I'm going to have to see it before I believe it with him in terms of staying healthy, and I wouldn't put a cent on it. But if you're telling me in April we're sitting here and Embiid has played most of the season, then I would almost guarantee that he is a top three MVP finisher and has a great chance to win the award. Yeah, and that's why Philly fans hate Mark and Brogdon, because he just played more games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I ask everyone this. I've got the NBC win lines in front of me. Philly, I think we mentioned, or you mentioned, that they're maybe a, a step below Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and I guess the lines reflect that. So Philly's win line is 51 and a half. Are you over or under on that? I would go a slight under on that. I think 
the talent is there to win more games. They won more than that last year. But for me, I bake in the fact that, unfortunately, Embiid is probably going to miss 20 games minimum. He always does. And as I said before, this not to be uh, redundant again, but this whole <laughs> melodrama with their point guard. Yep. You didn't say his name there. But the melodrama <laughs> from Australia has this toxic energy over the team. And I think a slow start, if it happens, is going to snowball. So they are going to finish about 500 unless it really goes to hell. They are probably going to be mid to high 40s in wins. But I don't see them pushing the 50s. And to be honest, I don't see them finishing third in the East. I think Atlanta and Boston will probably overtake them this year, despite the fact that they have the talent to go further. But I just don't trust everything coming together for them this year. Yeah. Um, I think load management is going to come into it a lot more for Philly with Embiid, like compared to some of these other teams with the the lines that, that you might have to think about a little bit. Um, so I think, yeah, there is a chance... I say chance. There's a fair likelihood Embiid's going to miss enough games to make that line seem a little bit high come February, March, you know, when they're probably a couple of games above 500 and just looking for the late season rally. Uh, I guess finally, do you have a bold prediction for Philly for the season? A bold prediction? Mm. Well, Philly's built on bold predictions, so... It is. My bold prediction is that Simmons gets traded for another All-Star. I think they're going to hold out. I think that they're not going to take a CJ McCollum package or a Buddy Hill package. I think whether it's Damian Lillard or someone we don't know yet, I do think that Simmons gets aggregated with Tyrese Maxey or Thibel and a bunch of picks and the Sixers replace him with a bona fide superstar that's a better player. So yep. I think on the court this year, it's going to be, as I've been saying, a rocky road. I wouldn't expect uh, things to be very coherent, but my little bold proclamation is that when Simmons gets traded, it will be for a better player. And the Sixers will be entering the playoffs with Embiid plus player X and some momentum behind them. And they're going to be a hot, uh, I suppose, tip for people to make some noise in the playoffs with the Simmons melodrama behind them and a new player in tow that is, as I say, probably going to be better than what Ben has brought to the table. Yeah, and th- there was rumours of a Jeremy Grant package, which as a Detroit fan, I'm like, do I really want Simmons? I don't think he makes a lot of sense. Um, I lo- I always espouse for Australians on the team, like Aaron Baines, but Cameron Besto had a cup of coffee in a preseason. But yeah, I don't think I can handle the Simmons drama right now. Um, have you got anything to, to promote before we let you go? No, I, just, I was just going to joke then. I think I'll get Danny Mills from the Wildcat from the line. They come up for Bryce Cotton. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luke, Luke Travers might be um, one of those guys. That might be, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I'll give him a throw in my uh, basketball uniform from the Perth uh, pickup scene. They can have that because it's related to the Wildcat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, yeah. Nothing much to plug, just the pick and roll as always. Uh, the fellas do great work there and, yeah, they've got everything covered for the upcoming season. So I just encourage everyone listening to go into the pick and roll, subscribe. There are better voices than me on there that you can listen to, but there's content coming out daily and they'll have you covered for the season. So yeah, just go check out the pick and roll team and uh, show them some love as we enter the Christmas season. No, definitely endorse that message. Um, other than that, yeah, hopefully the Simmons melodrama doesn't take too many years off your life and best of luck for the season. Thanks, Ben. I look forward to a chat where we're the only bands that get mentioned in the call. (laughs) Too easy, mate. Thanks, mate.